This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Gonzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Gonzano's Baldface Truth. Am I a bad sports radio show host? Serious question. The question I'm asking myself today because... I realized this week that I have spent an inordinate amount of time thinking about, talking about, digesting, interviewing, talking with a number of University of Washington and University of Oregon sources, coaches, players, administrators, and former coaches, and writing about it at johnconzano.com. And what I'm saying is I'm hyper-focused on this top 10 battle between the Huskies and the Ducks that's taking place at Husky Stadium, possibly and probably to the detriment of everything else going on. What I'm saying is, am I neglecting my other kids? Am I neglecting Oregon State? Am I neglecting the Blazers? Am I neglecting the NFL? Major League Baseball playoffs? I mean, hell, I'm looking around and thinking about these things. I watched Thursday Night Football. I watched Patrick Mahomes in the Kansas City Chiefs. uh, You know, kind of stumble and bumble their way through a win over the Denver Broncos. I mean, they're just better than the Broncos, and they were able to, despite not playing all that well, win the football game, and that's great. And I watched the NFL over the weekend, and of course I was watching the Super Niners on Sunday night as they embarrassed the Dallas Cowboys. And I am paying attention to the playoffs and Bryce Harper and the drama with the Phillies and all of that, you know, the debate whether something said in the clubhouse when it's not part of an interview, is it off the record? Is it on the record? I mean, did you hear that? I mean, that big debate going on there. And I just think if you invite media members into the locker room or the clubhouse and they see things, if they see a bottle of Andro sitting in Mark McGuire's locker, or if you, uh, you know, you see somebody uh, icing their ankle, you know, it's fair game. If you're in the locker room, you're invited in, you're a credentialed media member. I mean, yeah, I've had conversations in those settings that are on the record, off the record, on background. Those are conversations you can have, but at face value, until we're off the record, we're on the record, right? All right. What I'm saying is there's other stuff going on. And and uh, yet amid that, I find myself hyper-focused on Oregon-Washington and what is happening with the Huskies and the Ducks. 115th meeting between these two teams will take place tomorrow at Husky Stadium. I'll be on the scene to uh, cover it for johnconzano.com and talk about it uh, for this radio show on Monday. And I'm fascinated to see what is going to happen in the stadium and the whole game day hysteria and the hoopla. And we're going to get into all that on today's show. Softy will be sitting down the way in the press box. I'll uh, be be sure to tell you how he's doing, different points of the game, so make sure you're following me on the socials. But I also know that there's a hell of a game going on in Corvallis. UCLA's coming to town. Chip Kelly and the Bruins have been fantastic. They've been lights out on defense in the last couple weeks. They're going to Reeser Stadium, a very difficult place to play, 
to try to derail Oregon State's season. And Oregon State is going to try to punch back with, uh, you know, coming off a big offensive output against Cal. And, and Jonathan Smith, uh, I guess he joined us this week on the show, and we talked about, you know, his superstitions and how good he feels about the offense and why it is that Oregon State isn't trying to play a perfect game every time they go out on the field. And, and we had Anthony Gold, his wide receiver, on the show as well yesterday. Uh, Anthony Gold, uh, you know, 117 yards receiving against Cal and probably the two biggest catches of the game. And and I guess what I'm saying is I guess I did pay a little bit of attention to to uh, Oregon State and UCLA, at least from that standpoint. And I'm not hearing from fans. Nobody's, nobody's bellyaching. Nobody's written me an email. I did get an email from an angry Husky fan, though. Husky fan emailed me to say, you know, why is it that I always pick Oregon and Oregon State to win in my weekly picks? And I would point out that while that's true this season, I don't think I've picked against either team straight up. I have picked against them with the spread. But uh, I'm also, what am I? Am I 10-1? and one? Ten and one is my record. Like it's not like I'm picking them and they're losing. So you know I'm picking them and they they happen to be winning the game. So I must I guess I'm just seeing them accurately or I'm a very lucky homer. I don't know. But you try walking into one of those stadiums and calling me a homer and see what kind of reaction you get from the fans because it's not what I get when I walk into the stadium. I get hey I don't always agree with you, but I listen to you and I read you. Or I get hey um, why do you hate us so much? Be nice to us. I've had fans at Oregon State and Oregon this season both walk by me on the concourse and go, hey, be nice to us in print. And and I always go, you know, that's up to the players and the coaches on the field. Dan Landing screws this game up tomorrow. I'm going to write about it. Jonathan Smith screws up the game 5 o'clock against UCLA. I'm going to write about it. But I'm asking, should I have been more balanced with the other stuff? Should I have been more tuned in to the Trailblazers starting their exhibition season? I'm going to talk about the Blazers coming up. Should I have been more tuned into what's going on to ma- with Major League Baseball and, and the playoffs and the possible narratives for the World Series? I think you had a great postseason that's forming. Do you like Texas? Do you like Houston? Do you like Arizona or the Phillies? Like, you know, you know who do you like here? You know, the Phillies knocked the Braves out. That was kind of fun to see that series. But you got an American League Championship Series and – you know, you got a National League Championship Series, and you got a whole bunch of possible matchups. Like if the Phillies and the Rangers end up playing in the World Series, it's going to be like the you know the free agency series. These are these are two two uh, franchises that are got a bunch of players that have contracts that are going to be bad contracts eventually. But you know they were built in free agency. Bryce Harper, Trey Turner, Zach Wheeler. Rangers, uh, the Rangers might be more in on all in on free agents than anybody. Corey Seager, among them, Jacob Degrom, who, you know, uh, you know, won't be there for the series. But you know, in the end, um, you've got uh, you know a bunch of, uh, and then on the other side, you, you could you could argue that the Diamondbacks and the Rangers are like, you could argue that two seasons ago the Rangers lost 102 games. That's that's a really good story. That's an interesting storyline. And then, you know, the Astros and the Diamondbacks, this is, um, you know, it, you know, about as close as you can get to David and Goliath. The Astros are in the their seventh straight American League Championship Series, trying to get to the World Series for the fifth time in seven years. Everybody hates them. Uh, they're trying to win consecutive 
two consecutive World Series. First franchise to do that since the Yankees. And then the Diamondbacks are on the other side. They only won 84 regular season games. They might be the worst team that made the postseason. And here they are with an opportunity possibly to play in a World Series. Yeah, so I'm saying there's should I have given all of that other stuff more airtime? Should I have had, you know, my friend John Morosi, Major League Baseball expert, on the show to talk, you know, more about baseball? Or, or do we wait to the World Series? The, I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is I'm consumed right now by college football, the Pac-12 conference in particular, and within that, the uh, I guess in a subsection, I am consumed at least momentarily with the idea that, uh, you know, you've got uh, Oregon and Washington playing this huge football game. And by the way, let's not forget the storyline of these two frenemies that will be suiting up tomorrow at Husky Stadium. Yes, they're frenemies. You know, depending on what narrative you believe, it was either Oregon that made the ultimate decision that drew both of them into the Big Ten Conference, or it was Washington who made the ultimate decision that drew both of them into the Big Ten Conference. That, you know, it was either one or the other because... um, you know, you had these two teams, and they weren't going to leave the conference without each other. You had these two teams that were sitting on the fence, ultimately waiting to find out uh, what happens um, and to find out whether, um, they, you know, both of them were going to go or none of them were going to go. It's been a weird 14 months. Um, I, uh, you know, I think when, as I look back at what was happening with media rights negotiations, what was happening last summer and into the fall as it was clouding the college football season, where, uh, you know, I now look back at it and go, gosh, like, that was exhausting stuff. It was uh, probably really anxious for a lot of people. It's still, I think, an anxious place because Oregon State and Washington State don't have clarity on what they're going to do and where they fit into the college football grand scheme. But, um, you know, I try to do a good job on this show, and I'm just being candid here. I try to do a good job on this show of talking about the things that I think you care about. And I'm not easily swayed by the masses. Like, I don't go to ESPN's website or Yahoo's website and then dictate what I'm going to do the show on. And I think a lot of people do that. A lot of people draft off of what they think everybody's interested in. I just try to do the show that I would want to listen to, that I think you're interested in. I get the guests that I think uh, are the best guests that we can get all week long. We had Dan Lanning on the show. We had Jonathan Smith on the show. I efforted Michael Penix Jr. I efforted Kalen DeBoer. Washington's uh, media relations people are just buried this week. They have game day in town. It's a big matchup. I think they're just completely overwhelmed. I'm not taking it personally because they have in the past got right back to me and got us Kalen DeBoer, got us Michael Penix Jr. So I'll, I'll try to get those guys on maybe prior to the Oregon State game uh, with a little more notice. But I, I'm literally uh, you know, looking back at the week and going, hey, what could I have done differently? What did I leave out? I always do that with the show. And, and my hope here is that, like the rest of you out there that are listening to this show, you find something as entertaining and redeeming in this show that I do. Uh, and I, I often enjoy the calls as much as anything. But I am looking hard at tomorrow's college football day in the Pac-12 conference. And even tonight, with Colorado playing tonight in this game that Coach Prime is bellyaching about, 
He's got to play an 8 o'clock game, game that kicks off at 8 o'clock in Boulder against Stanford. It's a huge game for Colorado, but I think Coach Prime's more worried about recruiting and the eyeballs, and I think he wants to signal to recruits that they won't be playing a bunch of late games. And so he's saying, you know, who made this up? And he's complaining about the kickoff time. Like, like Coach Prime, I got news for you. Like, you know, I, I really appreciate and like what you're doing for the conference, but this conversation's like 2019, bellyaching. Let's get to, like, 2023 as it comes to pertains to this stuff. Colorado's really lucky. Colorado's going into the Big 12 Conference where they won't have to play Oregon or Washington. They won't have to play USC or UCLA. They will only have to worry about Baylor and Houston and Utah and Arizona and Arizona State. I mean, it's a much safer, easier place for Coach Prime to have success. He's got a better opportunity to get to the college football playoff in the Big 12 Conference than he ever would have in the Pac-12. Uh, I also think that you know, it's a great game tonight. You know, even though it's Stanford, who hasn't had a lot of success, I'm fascinated by seeing what is going to happen tonight on ESPN it's at 7 o'clock our time and 8 o'clock in Boulder when a Stanford team that has had a very difficult time scoring points plays a game against a really dynamic offensive team at Colorado that really hasn't stopped anybody. Uh, so it's like it's it's weakness against weakness. And in can Stanford's offense that has been really bad in the red zone in particular, can it find the end zone against Colorado? And if it does, that should be a really interesting game. And it's and it's you know, it it's not the best game in the Pac twelve. It's not even close as you look at the weekend. But I'm interested in it because it's got a compelling storyline and it's got Colorado involved and can a one and four Stanford team go into Boulder and make it a little dicey? And then tomorrow morning, let's just look at tomorrow morning's Cows at Utah. That's that's great. I'm interested in that. That's that's a 12 p.m. game. I'll watch that for a few minutes before the Oregon Washington game kicks off at 12:30 on ABC. Then obviously it's you know the number seven team Washington hosting the number eight team Oregon. This has never happened before. Never had two top ten teams involved in this rivalry game. It's it's going to be amazing to see what happens. And with Michael Penix Jr., with Bo Nix, and I'm going to ask our guest coming up. We have Mike Varell of the Seattle Times who will be joining us later this hour. I'm going to ask him, like, I'm not worried about Michael Penix Jr. or Bo Nix making a mistake. I know Penix threw an interception in last year's game, but I'm not worried about these guys in this setting with this stage arriving and having their eyes so wide that they don't uh, function and or they make a big mistake, like a big a bad pick six. You know, not a Kenny Wheaton's going to score moment, I don't think, in this game because these two quarterbacks, I think, are too experienced and too good. Unless something wonky happens, I don't think it's going to come down to one of them being the GOAT. But I also think, justifiable or not, there's probably some Heisman votes that are going to be decided, whether that's fair or not. Some people are going to go, in order to win the Heisman Trophy, you have to have played for the team that won this game, I guess. That could become a narrative. And then later at 4 o'clock, Arizona at Washington State. I mean, come on. Arizona has been really respectable in going 3-3. Three and three. They're, they're very much improved on defense. They played everybody close. They barely lose to Washington. They barely lose to USC. It's not good enough to get over the hump. There's one of those teams that's like a year away, maybe. So look out for them in the Big 12 next year. They'll be fine in the Big 12. But they're going to Washington State, who was awesome until last week when they ran into UCLA. 
And then they couldn't score, couldn't do anything on offense. They were terrible on third down. And I'm kind of watching Washington State to go, okay, like this is your moment of truth. Do you bounce back this week at home? And do you give a much better performance? And then, oh, by the way, at 4.30, here comes USC and Notre Dame on NBC. And as bad as USC's been on defense, Notre Dame hasn't exactly been an offensive juggernaut. So, again, weakness against weakness. How is this going to go? Two lost Notre Dame against undefeated USC in South Bend. I've covered games in South Bend. I covered Notre Dame as a beat reporter in the late 1990s. It is a uh, interesting place to see teams come in, and USC will go in there. I don't think it's going to be easy for USC, but I think it's one of those moments where Caleb Williams kind of justifies why he's the reigning Heisman Trophy champion. Like you know, I think I think th- that moment is cut out for Caleb Williams. Big audience, and it'll all be on him. And I have no doubt that the guy could probably handle it. So, but will USC win the game or not? Uh, and then five o'clock on Fox, the nightcap. I think it's the second best game of the day after the Oregon Washington game. It's UCLA four and one UCLA ranked 18th, playing five and one Oregon State. Both these teams ranked, uh, you know, Oregon State's number 15, and this is an elimination game. And so, yes, I'm looking at the potential for the uh, you know the the Major League Baseball playoffs and the NBA stuff going on, but I. Uh, I don't want to ignore this stuff because in a lot of ways, it feels way more important, way bigger to me. You decide if I'm a bad radio show host or not. Mike Varell, Seattle Times, is coming up. We'll do an interview uh, about this Oregon-Washington game. What does he see? Leave it here. Well, it's Oregon-Washington week, and we've got a real dose of Oregon-Washington on this show, and it's been fun. I mean, you look at 114 meetings, and for the first time, you've got two teams ranked in the top ten playing. Mike Farrell covers the Huskies for the Seattle Times, does a fantastic job. He's a great follow on Twitter, at Mike Farrell on Twitter. Mike, what has this week been like for you? Yeah, I think it's been interesting just to see the approach of, you know, the coaches, the players from the other side, because you go into some of these weeks and you get the, the rigmarole of it's another game, it's another game, it's a faceless opponent, and, and people have that philosophy. And I think it's been a, a big enough game and a big enough week where Washington's coaches have kind of disregarded that. And they said, yeah, it's a huge game. They know that. They're saying that. Ryan Grubb, UW's offensive coordinator, agreed that it's the biggest game of his coaching career. Uh, Kalen DeBoer DeBoer is also being pretty honest about the stakes here. So I think it's kind of transcended a certain uh, certain popularity and and a certain level of stakes where, you know, everyone is acknowledging the scene here in college game day being in town and the stage and the opportunity at hand. Yeah, I want to go right to game day. You you guys wrote about that in the Seattle Times, but how does that game day appearance frame this game or maybe change that game or or, or is it a distraction to have – Pat McAfee interviewing Kalen DeBoer and, you know, just the extra stuff that's around all week. I think it can be a distraction, certainly, but I also think it's something that they just have to accept because if Washington wants to be what it wants to be and be on a certain stage and enter the Big Ten and be able to recruit nationally and present themselves as a national brand, they have to do things like this. And, you know, just watching the Pat McAfee show the last couple of hours and he's stationed inside Husky Stadium and talking to all the people back in Indianapolis, it's kind of evident how little understanding there is around this program where, you know, he sounds flabbergasted. He says, oh, it's really beautiful here, as if he didn't know. And, I mean, I think at Washington, 
you market it as the greatest setting in college football, but you've got to have a microphone to shout that. And I think they know that this is an opportunity for them to do that and that they have to do that to get where they want to be in the Big Ten. The, uh, there's always a little extra electricity. I'm sure this this game is uh, a hot ticket. I looked on StubHub, and it looked like you know, you're know, you talking about 300 bucks if you want to sit in the lower level at Husky Stadium. How, how, how does this game match up to games maybe in recent history that you can remember covering as far as ticket demand and excitement? Yeah, I mean, this is the biggest one in my tenure. I've been covering the team since 2019, so I don't go all the way back. But, I mean, this is going to be the first sellout here since 2019 in the Apple Cup, and I believe the Oregon game that year also sold out. But all of a sudden you have a pandemic in there, and it's hard to build that back up in terms of hitting the highest highs. And I think, especially here, Husky Stadium, you know, is proud of the fact that it has the loudest game recorded history against Nebraska in 1992. There is that sense of nostalgia and sense of what Husky Stadium is capable of. So it's going to be interesting to see as you go in this weekend, can they hit that? They just announced that they're going to have a decibel meter on hand. Can they go over the 133.6 that they notably got three decades ago? I, I think they talk so much about the greatest setting and what Husky Stadium can be, and now is the time to show it. Let me ask you about the matchups because, uh, you know, we, we get hyper-focused on Michael Penix Jr. and Bo Nix, but you know the Washington defense, offense, strengths, weaknesses. Uh, where will your eyes or where is your mind right now in the run-up to this game as far as the key matchups in this, in this game? Yeah, I mean, you just use the phrase, you know, the run, and in terms of how well Oregon has run the ball and how well they ran the ball a year ago where really, you know, people – look from a wider lens and remember that Washington won that game against Oregon, but Oregon ran for 313 yards, six yards per carry, two touchdowns. Washington uh, missed 19 tackles in that game, which is the most in Kalen DeBoer's almost two seasons here. They couldn't bring Bucky Irving down. They really struggled, and they've been somewhat inconsistent in that area this year. So against a team that's leading the country, I believe, in yards per carry, can you slow the running game down enough? I think that's going to be the biggest thing. Not the Bo Nix thing necessarily, not the the Heisman comparison. Of course, Michael Penix Jr. has to be excellent. Um, and on the other side, you know, it really is him, but also those wide receivers going against uh, a pretty new secondary for Oregon, a talented group, but a group that was not here a season ago. So I look at that, the wide receivers against Oregon's DBs and also Washington's ability to stop the run, and that's really going to make the difference. Oregon faced some adversity in Week 2. I was at the game in Lubbock, Texas, and in the second half against Texas Tech, they had to really come from behind to win that game, and they showed a lot of metal wasn't there wasn't a clean performance they made a lot of mistakes they had a lot of penalties and stu- such but i like the resilience of that game at, at what point have you learned about washington this season that's the question is i don't know that we fully have i feel like you know and tomorrow's going to be so interesting because you see these things statistically and the offense is what it was a year ago plus some Michael Panix Jr. has been so good, the wide receivers, the tight ends. I think we came into this season knowing exactly what they have in so many areas, but the where we don't is some of those things, some of those places where they haven't been fully tested, like like the run defense. You know, the pass rush hasn't been what they expected it to be, at least in terms of sack numbers. Uh, can they get the pass rush going against Oregon? Can the run defense stand up? Can the running game, which has gotten a lot better in recent weeks, continue to churn with Dylan Johnson? I think there is a certainty around Michael Penix Jr. to, to some, you know, to some extent, as well as the wide receivers and the tight ends. But everything surrounding that hasn't really been tested, and that's partially a credit to them blowing out pretty much every opponent. Even the Arizona game, 
they were a fumble away from going up three scores in the fourth quarter. So they haven't been tested, and they certainly are going to be tomorrow. Isn't it weird, though, when I think about Penix and Bo Nix, there's no part of my brain that can comprehend a situation where one of those guys makes a really bad mistake. I just think they're so good, they're so reliable, they're so calm, they're experienced. Um, you know, Do you see that the same way? Like I look at every other facet of this game and I go, hey, there could be a fumble, there could be missed tackles, there could be drop passes, but I'm not worried about Michael Penix or Bo Nix like throwing a pick six in a bad situation. I don't think that there's going to be a disaster for those teams, but you know, really a twist on that is the fact that one of Michael Penix Jr.'s biggest positives, maybe his biggest positive, is his response to adversity. I mean, you saw that last year in the Oregon game. He had such a stellar game, but people forget he throws an interception in the end zone that looked right. as an absolute backbreaker in the fourth quarter You know, on a throw that should never have happened. And then what did he do? He gets the ball back, and I think it was three plays later, he rips the 60-yard touchdown to tie the game, and that's the one you remember. And his response to adversity, his response directly after interceptions has been absolutely elite, and that's something that Kalen DeBoer talks about. So obviously you don't want the mistake, and he hasn't made a lot of them. He only has two interceptions this season. But when he does trip up, the immediate response is typically immaculate, and I expect more of that tomorrow. How big is this game for Kalen DeBoer? Huge, huge. I mean, I, you know, starting starting his career, I believe, at 16-2 and two at Washington, he's already solidified himself to some degree. But when you're talking about becoming really one of those elite coaches in college football, it's winning on stages like this. And if he wants to build Washington into a perennial top-ten program, not one that, that peaks out and has great receivers and great quarterback and then has to reload over two or three years, if he wants to maintain that level, if he wants to recruit on that level, which they – haven't really done to this point. It's about winning these games and establishing yourself and continuing to beat Dan Lanning and to prove that you are on that level with Oregon every single year. So they've won some really impressive games. They've done a lot, and they've you know exceeded expectations. But just to stay there, you've got to win these games, and you've got to win these games at home. So it's, it's another big test for him. Yeah, and I think it dovetails nicely. And you know, I was, I've been thinking about Oregon's path into the Big Ten, and it, it's evident that they're going to spend. They're going to try to out-recruit everybody. They're going to try to, you know, just get better players and, and live on that. And Washington, you know, if they can win this game, I think they go into the Big Ten saying, hey, we beat Oregon twice in a row, and they can recruit off of that. Um, how, how, how is that being talked about uh, among Washington fans, coaches? How often does the Big Ten stuff come up? Yeah, I mean, it comes up often, and I think, you know, when you talk about what the strategy is going to that league, I think Washington is at a little bit of a philosophical crossroads. But I think in the recruiting, it's pretty apparent what they're going to do, where in this upcoming recruiting class, they only have 14 commits, and that's on purpose. They're pretty much done with 14 commits. And why do you leave 10, 12, 13 spots? Because you're losing all of your best players in offense. You're losing the quarterback. You're losing the wide receivers, the tight ends. You're losing, you know, a couple – offensive tackles, uh, potentially linebackers, and they want to be good right away. So this is a, a team that hasn't fully embraced the transfer portal in terms of numbers to this point, and I think they're about to. So, you know, uh, Oregon has certainly done that in recent years, and I think Washington knows that to maintain this level and to be good right away in the Big Ten, you can't rely on retro freshmen and true freshmen to get you there. I think they're going to make a big swing in the transfer portal this offseason and try to go in to the Big Ten with some new names, but hopefully maintain that same level. You know, it's probably unfair to these two guys, but Penix and Bo Nix will go into this game tomorrow 
with uh, people wondering who's better, who who should get the Heisman vote. I put Penix on my ballot last year. You know, I had him. I think I had him third on my ballot. Um, I thought he deserved it. Is it too? Is it unfair to these guys to say this is the game where we eliminate one of them from the Heisman race? Yeah, I think that is unfair. I, and I do think, like, it, you know, talking about it is natural. And these are the games that separate yourself. But when you look at Washington in particular, just me being around that program, this is a massive game. But you look at the month of November for them, and if Penix trips up a little bit here and then he beats USC on the road and then he beats Utah at home and then he beats Oregon State on the road and then he beats Washington State at home and possibly the last Apple Cup four straight games to finish that season, you can win – you can lose one game and win the Heisman. Caleb Williams lost two and won the Heisman. And there is a lot more meat on the bone for Michael Penix Jr. this season. But still, this is a massive opportunity for both players to position themselves in that, in, themselves in that race, but I don't think it's an eliminator by any stretch. Do you think we have an undefeated team in, in Vegas at the end, or, or is it 2-1 lost teams plan? Um, I, would, I would tend to say no just because of the history of the Pac-12, and it's just one of those things where they have to show me. I think... You know, there, there is a real strength in the conference, as, as the records and the rankings have shown. I think Washington's really good. USC is really powerful. Oregon, I think, is really well-balanced. Uh, you know, Oregon State is a really, you know, quality team. Washington State, you can go on and on. But it's just such a gauntlet. And even for this Washington team, when they put so much into that, if they win tomorrow, like I said, you still have an absolute nightmare in November. So there's just so many opportunities to slip up, and, and I want to be proven wrong in that, but it'll be interesting if there is a one-loss team in this conference with how good this conference has been, how that one-loss team will be viewed. All right. The Washington uh, now has a new athletic director introduced this week. I noticed they brought the marching band and the cheerleaders out. felt a little bit like USC, Mike. Uh, you know, what, what was that like for you to – to see a new athletic director come in, and how weird is that to have it happen on the week a week like this? Yeah, I had, I had remarked to our columnist that it's just a little bit of a strange scene because it's not like you're introducing the football coach where it's this visible this visible name. No one really knew Troy Dan in these parts, and you know when you look at the resume, extremely qualified, and I think you know it certainly seems like they made a quality hire. But you're bringing this guy in to steer the ship, and no one really knows who he is, and you bring in the like you said, the pomp and the circumstance and the cheerleaders and the glitz and the glam. But I think it works out well in terms of doing that on Oregon Week and saying, here's our guy, here's the guy who's going to lead us into the future. We're on this stage, game day is coming. If you wanted to do this and introduce this man when the spotlight was already here, I think they found a pretty good time to do it. But they've got to pay that off on Saturday. Yeah, and, and look, I, I think obviously wins like this help you raise funds, help you recruit. There's a lot of tentacles to this. Uh, I expect, I, I kind of think we're seeing... Oregon, Washington, part one and part two might happen in December. I mean, are, do you think that these yeah. two teams could play again for the title? I, I think there's absolutely no question. I mean, there's still a lot to be seen with both teams. I, I think Washington's defense is better than it was last year. I, it remains to be seen if they're good enough. I think Oregon is the most balanced team in the conference, and USC might be the most powerful offensively. So it'll just be interesting to see how those teams compare to each other head-to-head. But certainly, I think Washington is in a position where it's more complete than it was a year ago. Oregon is more balanced than it was a year ago. And you know, to see this being being potentially one of two, that wouldn't surprise me in any way. So we'll have to see how it plays out. All right, if you handed me the stat sheet at the end of the game, and I could only look at one stat, I would probably look at Oregon's rushing yards to, to get a sense of how this game mm-hmm. went. What would you want to see to, as your Rosetta Stone for this game? I honestly think that probably is the answer in terms of can you know 
rushing yards as well as yards per carry. Uh, third downs for both teams. Can UW get third down stops? Is Oregon going to be in position on third and one and third and two to roll over them? Also, UW has been really good and has had a huge emphasis on touchdowns in the red zone. And they slipped up a little bit in that area against Arizona. They had a fumble on the five, which you know can't happen for that team. But, but they typically are really, really good about making it hurt. And one more thing, Washington is really, really good when they either give up a turnover, their defense is only allowed one single touchdown and after five turnovers, and their offense, after they get a takeaway, is absolutely lethal. So who can make the most of a, of a turnover in this game? That could spell the difference. Mike Burrell, Seattle Times. Read him at seattletimes.com. Follow him on Twitter. Mike, thank you for joining us. Uh, you know, I appreciate you, and I'll see you in the press box tomorrow. All right. Thanks, John. There you have it uh, from Seattle where game day is already invaded. Uh, look, I think there's just an extra electricity to a game day appearance from ESPN. I've seen it multiple times in the Pac-12, and it generally works out well for the home team. How will it work out for Seattle and the Huskies? We'll find out tomorrow. Leave it here. Coming up in the 4 o'clock hour, I've got a treat for you. It's going to be softy, 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 plus a little Michael Penix Jr. and Bo Nix. What am I talking about? Stick around. It's going to be a fun season for Blazer fans who are interested in seeing young players play and grow and evolve. And there's something to that as a sports fan. Maybe it's a little bit of an old-fashioned thought, but I liked the idea back in the day that we got to see college football players as freshmen and sophomore and then maybe junior and senior, and we got to see them grow and develop and expectations were put on players and we all know that the transfer portal has largely eliminated some of our ability to enjoy that because we can't really count on that trajectory or that arc being there and being present and being part of what we uh, we enjoy as sports fans. And uh, I, I do find myself, though, looking around sports and going, okay, where can you still find that? And, of course, you know, we see some flashes of that in the NFL where teams will draft players and put them in position to, to, to grow a little bit, and then you get a peek at them. I think the Kansas City Chiefs did that last night a little bit with some of their skill position players, young players, rookie players, who we got a chance to see, oh, wow, like in in uh, seven, eight weeks or in a year or two, that could be a really good player. Um, and certainly I think we've seen cases like a, a guy like Brock Purdy, who is the last player drafted in the NFL draft, and the 49ers end up leaning heavily into him. And... And we all go, wow, what an amazing story. Here's a guy that is a rookie in the NFL, and all he does is come in and win regular season games. And what's what's up with that? But people forget that Brock Purdy started like 40 games as a college player. We got to see him. I think it was 34 starts he had as a college player at Iowa State. We got to see that guy play, played in big games. He was lethal as a college football player. So I don't think Iowa State fans are surprised seeing Brock Purdy succeed in the NFL. You know, it's, it's the rest of us who are going, that's a rookie. That's the last guy that they picked. Um, so where can you look for that anymore? Well, like I mentioned, the Blazers. And look, I'm not here to sell you on the idea that this Blazers team is going to go out and make a run for the playoffs or go out and maybe not even win 30 games this year. I think the over-under right now on the Blazers' win total for the season is 27. The Scoot Henderson era, Shaden Sharp, some young players that, you know, could be stars if they continue to develop. And I think Steven was talking about it on yesterday's show. The Blazers have five of the top 100 players in the NBA. 
but nobody inside the first 48 or so. Uh, you know, uh, you got uh, the Blazers. They don't have Damian Lillard anymore. And we know that, right? Like, people keep telling me that. You know, they don't have Lillard anymore. Um, but I, I think this franchise has got problems, and I bring it up all the time. You know, the Root Sports thing that came out this week, that Root Sports would no longer be available on Xfinity, it's really disappointing to me. And I don't buy that the Blazers don't have any control over that. Yes, I know it's a business. Yes, I know Xfinity can go, hey, NBA season's coming. There might be additional demand for the Blazers product. How do we make more money? Well, let's take the Blazers and Root right before the season starts and let's put them on the uh, premium tier package so that diehard Blazer fans will uh, subscribe and pay a little more. But from an organizational standpoint, the Blazers should be pushing back against that. It's a bad look. It's the wrong time to be doing this. The Blazers should have been on the phone to Xfinity and a Root, and Root should have been on the phone to Xfinity saying, hey, wait a minute, don't really understand that, you know, I get it, you have a business to run, I get it, it's within your contract, but what can we do here because we want our product to be widely available. And I think it's a mistake, and I think it's old thinking for the Blazers to go all in with a regional sports network and, you know, we're watching them fail nationally. Maybe some of it is greed, some of it is the market pushing back, but we're watching the RSNs fail, and we're seeing some teams that had partnerships with those regional sports networks just say, hey, we're going to do something different. We're going to value the -the over-the-air product. And really what they're saying is they're going to value distribution over guaranteed revenue. The NBA's got a television contract with the league and and the teams that pays the bills. The regional sports programming, it can be worth 10 to $20 million a year for these teams, is valuable to a certain extent, but even more valuable, probably worth more than 10 to $20 million, frankly, if we're looking at this from a tangible and intangible viewpoint is the relationship that the franchise has with young fans. And I railed on the Blazers this week and I said, look, this is the wrong time for the product to not be widely available. The Blazers are not going to be very good on the court. It's a disservice to the fan base for the Blazers to allow a third party to squeeze and wring a few more dollars out of Blazer fans in front of the season. And frankly, that they're allowing them to shut the, the fans out because there are going to be a lot of fans who go, eh, I'll get the package if this team shows me they can win, and they're not going to win. And so I go back to that point that I started this segment with. You've got Scoot Henderson. You've got Shaden Sharp. You've got all these young players that are exciting. you got Chauncey Billups trying to make this his team. It's a great opportunity had the Blazers done what the Utah Jazz did or what the Phoenix Suns have done, which is take the long view and value your fans to the point where you say, we're not going to squeeze them, we're not going to exploit them, we're going to make the games available. In Salt Lake City, I literally heard the team president say it was a decision between reaching about 1.2 million or 1.5 million fans if had they gone with a regional sports network as their primary TV partner. It would have got 1.2 million people. That, that can watch the Utah Jazz play, which is cool. They would have made more money. Or do they just go over the air? If you have a TV antenna, you can see Utah Jazz games on local TV and reach 3.5 million people. And they made the decision 
to go with the larger audience, knowing that that's going to pay dividends in the end. You're going to have sports fans in Salt Lake City, and Phoenix is doing the same thing, that are going to be able to grow up watching their team, feeling connected to their team, watching the players develop, watching them grow, getting excited about it, wanting to go to the arena to go see a game in person because they saw it on TV. Uh, you know, kids bonding with players, getting uh, enthusiastic about the team, and literally evolving as the team evolves. That's what happens to your enthusiasm. Blazers fans in 1977 weren't suddenly sprouting out of the sidewalk going, all of a sudden, you know, I, I like to get involved and follow this team. No, they had been with the Blazers in the early 70s, watched them be born as a franchise, Harry Glickman's franchise, watched them struggle, watched them make mistakes in the draft, watched them develop, watched Bill Walton arrive and Maurice Lucas arrive, and all of a sudden Dr. Jack Ramsey had something that didn't surprise Blazer fans who had been there in 1975-1976. By the time the 76-77 season started, Blazer fans were ready for that to happen, and they won an NBA championship, and that glue paid dividends after the 77 title. And I think it really did fuel the organization into the 80s and into the 90s where you could still see games on local television in Portland and watch your team and bond with your team. And all of a sudden, here came Clyde Drexler. Here came NBA Finals appearances. and But Blazer fans that weren't in the arena were still very familiar with the players and what was happening because they were able to access it, especially young fans of the 80s and 90s. And if you are a young Blazer fan of the 80s and 90s and you're listening to this show right now, I bet you're nodding your head going, hey, I fell in love with this team. I fell in love with players. This became my team. I felt like I was part of it. I felt like I was included. All of those sentiments are born from a team saying, we're going to maximize our distribution and our exposure, particularly to young fans. And I think it's really short-sighted of the organizations who go, no, 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 we're going to squeeze every dime we can out of the next four or five months. We're going you to know, put it on the premium package, do whatever you want because you're paying for our rights without defending their fans. The Blazers have put their fans in a bad position by doing business with Root and doing business with Xfinity, the distributor, and allowing them to exploit the fans. Like The Blazers should have protected their fans. They should have demanded, hey, can we have a set number of games that can go over the air? We'll take a little less money. Just in case, you know, Root and Xfinity and some of the providers decide that they want to uh, fully exploit Blazer fans, we got to protect them. Like, that thinking should have been there, and they're doing it in Salt Lake City, and they're doing it in Phoenix. They should be doing that kind of thinking in Portland as well. I think Blazer fans would love to see Scoot Henderson. They'd love to connect with this team. They'd love to feel like they're part of it. And I won't speak for seven, eight, nine-year-old kids, but that's the sweet spot in our household with our kids. And I can tell you that, like, they hear about the Blazers. They want to, I think, be Blazer fans, but there's there would be nothing greater for them to be able to see the television on in the living room and sit down next to their dad and and uh, go, hey, well, you know, tell me about this team. I mean, my, my kids have fallen in love with the 49ers, not because the 49ers games are on some tier package, but because the 49er games, we can get them on our TV, and Dad happens to be watching them. And maybe some families will just say, hey, you know what, we'll pay the 
the 20 bucks a month to get the premium packages, 20 bucks a month more. And and that's fine. Bless you if that if you want to do that. But I'm here to tell you that not everyone's going to do that. Blazers know that. Xfinity knows that. Root knows that. It's just a bad look, and it's the wrong time for the Blazers organization to be doing this. Rise with us. Remember that when the Blazers were young and they had Brandon Roy and LaMarcus Aldridge and people got to see them and follow that, and then came an era of Blazers basketball that just wasn't as widely available. And I just wonder, I wonder what the byproduct of this will be. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you tell me. If kids grow up in the Portland metropolitan area not feeling like they have been able to watch their team, will they feel as connected to it? Will kids in Salt Lake City and Phoenix live and die with their teams because they grew up on it? I've got a bet, and I, I, have, a, I have an idea of what's going to happen there. I bet you do too. All right, I want you to leave it here. Coming up. We're going to do a fun hour of radio. It's going to be a lot of softy. All right? You heard him this week on the show. I went back into the archives, and I dug up some of the best of softy. He is undisputedly the biggest husky honk in the land. You're going to hear him at his best and at his worst. Plus, a conversation with Michael Penix Jr. that I had and a conversation with Bo Nix I had. I want you to hear these two quarterbacks, and you'll understand why I'm not worried about either one of these guys losing or blowing the football game that we're going to see take place tomorrow at Husky Stadium. I'll give you my pick on the Oregon State-UCLA front as well. Beavers hosting UCLA tomorrow, 5 o'clock on Fox. Huge football game for Jonathan Smith. Big, big game. Beavers, Bruins, Chip Kelly's triumphant return, return, return to Oregon. That is tomorrow at Research Stadium. Leave it here. You got the bald-faced truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network. Over the years, we've had Dave Softy Muller on this radio show a number of times. It was really interesting. I was kind of just going back this week and listening to some of the interviews we've done, and I, I can't believe how often I've talked to this honk on this show. I mean, I love Softy. You love Softy. You love hearing from him. He's hilarious. Uh, it's not, there's nothing funnier than watching a grown man lose his mind over his sporting team in a safe way. And Softy does that better than just about anybody else around. He's just, the, he's a honk. Uh, there's one, he's one of one when it comes to honks in the Pac-12 conference. But I, I realized how often I've talked to Safi over the years, including this year's interview, which was fantastic. He gave us some gems. But uh, what I did is I went back six or seven years and I pulled some of my favorite Dave Softy Mahler moments. Now, I'm going to start with this year's interview as he's trying to play a Jedi mind trick and put some pressure on Oregon coach Dan Lanning. Um, you tell me if this works or not. Here's Softy talking about the Oregon-Washington matchup happening tomorrow. John, i got to be honest with you, man. This game on Saturday, um, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it. Uh, I think if Oregon loses to UW, I think it'll be an embarrassment for Oregon, to be totally honest with you. I think if Dan Lanning loses to uh, to Washington Saturday, you got to start looking at Dan Lanning like Ohio State fans looking at Ryan Day and wonder if he can ever beat Michigan. Wow. Big statement there. I, I actually think both these teams could play Saturday and then play again in Vegas. Could you see two Washington-Oregon yeah. games? Could you handle that in a season? 
I, I absolutely could handle that. I'm not sure if your audience can handle two of me uh, as far as interviews on your radio program, so we'll have to make sure that they're ready for a double dose of softy. But, yeah, I think there's a chance that absolutely could happen because, guys, guys, let's be honest with you. Everybody's talking about this juggernaut and this gauntlet of a schedule that UW has to play and that Oregon has to play. Everybody in this conference has to play that schedule because everybody faces each other for the most part. So, for example, UW, after the Oregon game, has got USC, Utah, Oregon State, and Wazoo. Oregon's got Washington State, Utah, USC, and Oregon State. So anybody going through this thing undefeated, first of all, if anybody in this conference goes undefeated, whether it's USC, UW, Oregon, whatever, that team should be number freaking one in the country by the end of the year. If they run through that schedule in the Pac-12 and then win uh, the Pac-12 championship game against another likely top 10 team at that point in time of the year, that team should be number damn one in the country. So I don't see it. I think there's a real chance that UW and Oregon will meet again. I also think there's a chance, if things fall their way, that UW could win this game Saturday, Oregon wins the Pac-12 championship game, or vice versa, and they still both make the Final Four. How about that? I like that. You know, we saw that with Alabama and Georgia. How about three? How about three games between (laughs) UW and Oregon? How about we meet Saturday, we meet in Vegas, and then we meet again on New Year's Day in the semifinal in the the frickin' Rose Bowl? Can you? How about that? How about three games for UW and Oregon this year? Could you handle that? Like, I I could see you pacing around all week long. Three Uh, weeks? Could you handle three of those? I... I can't even handle this conversation right now, man, to be totally honest with you. All right. Let I me, think for let me, me, like, I, I can't do this conversation without having a damn defibrillator nearby let talking me, to you. Let me play devil's advocate here, all right? Everybody's saying these yeah. teams are really good. Oregon, Oregon, who have they played? Who has Washington played? Do we know if yeah. these teams are good, Softy? I don't think anybody has really played anybody. How's that sound, right? I mean, Oregon's got the win on the road in Lubbock over Texas Tech, and UW's got a thumping of Michigan State uh, in East Lansing. They're up 41 to nothing late in the third quarter. When they pulled everybody, they probably could have put 60 on, on Sparty, but, you know, Michael Penix went like three or four games in a row, John, and didn't even touch the fourth quarter, didn't even see the field in the fourth quarter. Uh, nobody has really accomplished anything. Uh, let's be totally honest with each other. And really, you know what, when it comes to Kalen DeBoer and Dan Lanning, in the grand scheme of things, what have these coaches even done, really? I mean, Dan Lanning's got a holiday bowl. Uh, Kalen DeBoer's got an Alamo bowl. I mean, so what? Who cares, right? I mean, Oregon wants Final Fours. UW wants Final Fours. Oregon's been to a BCS championship. Washington's been to a Final Four. You're not in it for the freaking Holiday Bowl, and I'm not in it for the damn Alamo Bowl. So in the end, these coaches have done nothing. A lot of teams are top ten in late September, early October. But who's going to be standing in late November, early December? That's all people give a damn about. And these coaches yet have have, have not done that yet. And I think this is a big game towards deciding which one's going to do it first. Tell me, am I crazy for picking Oregon? I think Oregon's the better team. I think they're a more complete team. No, I just told you. I think it's going to be an embarrassment if Oregon loses the game. And you just said why. They're, they're They're a way more complete football team. I mean, John, everything that Washington does well, Oregon has an answer for. UW number one in total offense. Okay, fine. Oregon's number six in total defense. UW number one in passing offense. Okay, fine. Oregon's number five in passing defense. Uh, how about UW number six in sacks allowed in the country? Okay, fine. Oregon's defense is tied for eighth with 18. Everything UW does well, Oregon has a response. Everything UW does weak, Oregon is good at. Washington, number 62 in total D. Oregon, number two in total offense. UW, 102nd in rush uh, offense. 
Oregon is 20th in run defense. The Huskies cannot get after the quarterback. Oregon does a great job of protecting the quarterback. This would be an absolute embarrassment. Embarrassment for Dan Lanning in Oregon to lose this game to Washington because on paper they are better in every single category. You don't get UW now. you got to wonder as an Oregon fan if Dan Lanning can ever get it done. All right, there's Softy doing what Softy does. It, look, I, I posed that question to Dan Lanning, the Oregon coach. Uh, the, the mental warfare that is being played out there. Because so, what Softy's doing is he's trying to create a uh, narrative there for Washington to rally around and and uh, maybe jinx Oregon. But does Oregon hear any of that? I asked Dan Lanning, the Oregon coach, specifically about that this week. Listen. Those Washington honks, one of them, Softy from KJR in Seattle, he came on this show and he, you know, is playing Jedi mind tricks. He's saying Oregon's a better team in every way and... There's a lot of noise out there. How do you how do you keep from hearing the noise? How do you how, how do you stay focused and uh, or is it amusing to you when you hear stuff like that? You hear me tell you that. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I guess that guy I don't know who he is, but he's not going to play in the game, so it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, we have to focus on the reality of who is playing this game. Our players, right? I don't get to play in it either, so um, it's really about how, what our players are going to do and what they're going to, you know, execute when it comes to game day. Here's what I know: there's two really good teams that are about to play in this game and they're both really talented and both are certainly capable of winning and it's going to be about who performs the best um you know, it's a great matchup i don't think it's ever been this highly ranked um not that rankings matter at all but i think it does you know show that you're talking about two really good teams so we're gonna go out there and play the game and, and uh see what see what happens did landing handle that well sounded like he did doing a whole segment of softy on today's show Here's a clip that came in the wake of Oregon's 70-21 to defeat to Washington. Remember Mark Helfrich having to apologize to the media and to fans for losing 70-21 to at Austin Stadium? Well, Willie Taggart came in. It was a new era of Oregon football. And Softy joined me in front of the 2017 game. Here he is. Yes, you know what you are to me as a Husky fan? You are my binky, is what you are, okay? I, that's why I bring you on, so I can just wrap you all over me and, and hold you tight and have you tell me everything's going to be fine after a 70-21 to 21 throttling last year. But Mark Helfrich is gone. The free Willie Taggart era has commenced. And damn it, things will be different in 2017. That's the paranoid side of me. The other side says, who am I kidding, man? Braxton freaking Burmeister, are you serious with this guy? I mean, if you're an Oregon football fan and you think about the idea, the prospect of Braxton Burmeister facing the death row defense on Sunday, this is what I would think if I were an Oregon fan. That's what I would think. Because I look at this guy's numbers and think, is this 1935? Are these passing numbers coming from, like, the Doak Walker era? Are you serious with this dude? Washington won the 2017 game 38-3. to I told Softy he was going to be fine. Braxton Burmeister, do you remember what he did in that game? Well, he threw for 31 yards, 7 of 13 passing against the Huskies. The 2018 game has become a game that uh, is memorable by Oregon's standpoint. Remember Peyton Henry missing a 37-yard field goal? Maybe you remember that. Maybe I remember that. But none of us can forget the sound of Dave Softy Malher listening to the end of that game, listening to, to Peyton Henry miss that field goal. He was homesick. He was watching the game on television, and he went Facebook Live in the final minutes, thankfully, 
And we've got it. We've got the audio of that. And I tell Softy we play it all the time when we're having a bad day because it's highly entertaining. Puts me immediately in a good mood. All right, baby, here we go. Oh, man, what a week, huh? Man, I, I feel like shit. My head's killing me, and I don't give a damn. Let's go, Peyton. He's got this. He's going to make this kick. You and I both know he's making this kick. He is going to make this kick. Here we go, baby. Come on, Peyton. Come on, Peyton. Let's go, big boy. You got it. 38 yards. 38 yards. 38 yards. Come on, Peyton. You got it, baby. Let's go, big boy. Let's go, big boy. Ah, Mario's getting nervous. <coughs> Come on, man. I would have liked to have had a little more. I didn't like running the clock down at the end there. I thought maybe run one more play and try to get to 34, 35 yards. But, hey, just, all right, it's okay. 38 yards. If I would have told you before the game that we'd have a crack at a game-winning 38-yard field goal, I think you would have taken it. And we asked this question before the Auburn game earlier in the year, but we said 40. Now it's 38 at Oregon, and you're talking about game seven, not game one. <sighs> Look at this. Okay, you have nervous. to stop talking. Stop talking. Come on, baby. Come on, baby. <coughs> the big one's upstairs. Wilkers, whatever the hell your name is. Everybody asking, why don't you have a bigger TV? The bigger TV's upstairs, okay? My niece lives with us, and that's her room now. That's why the TV's upstairs and why we're down here, for crying out loud. Stop asking me why we have a small TV. We don't. Make it. Here we go, baby. Come on, Peyton. Come on, Peyton. Come on, Peyton. Oh, Jesus Christ. I hate this guy. Come on, Mario. I hate this guy. Ah, s***. And he made that one, just like freaking Matt Bryant missed it against it. I hate that I hate icing the kicker. I hate the targeting rules in college football, and I hate icing the kicker on both sides. Their side, our side, I don't give a whose side, anybody's side. Get it out of the game. Get that crap out of the game. It's driving me freaking crazy. The call on Jalen, the call on the other guy for Oregon, Carl's bad, whatever the freaking hell his name. Terrible. Ruining college football. Hate it. God. Come on, baby. Come on, baby. Come on, Peyton. 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 You got it. Snap, hold, like an opera. Every everything's a piece. Just fluid motion. Come on, Peyton. Come on, Peyton. Come on, Peyton. Come on, baby. Come on, Peyton. Come on, Peyton. You got it. You got it, Peyton. Unbelievable. When I brought Softy back onto the show in front of the 2019 game, I asked him about the Peyton Henry missed field goal because that's what friends do. Uh, I wore my Sonic jacket the other day, a couple days ago, you know, got kind of late running out of the house and just grabbed whatever was in my coat rack and wore my green and gold Sonic jacket. And I walked into UW and somebody said, really, you're going to wear that during Oregon week? I said, why? And they said, well, those are Oregon's colors. I say, how do I know what Oregon's colors are anymore? <laughs> in one week they're wearing black, they're wearing white, they're wearing pink, they're wearing polka dot, they're wearing blue, they're wearing purple. I got no freaking idea what the hell Oregon's colors are anymore. Do you? What happened at the end of last year's game? Because, you know, I we have the audio of you, and we play it once in a while. Just when we're having a bad day, we'll play it, and we'll go. And you, you had the small TV or something in your house, and then you had the field goal missed, and you were also sick. You know, you, what happened? What happened last year? 
I was sick as a dog. I mean, what's there to figure out? I was sick as a dog. I was puking everywhere, and I wasn't feeling great. Had a horrible headache and a cold and the whole spiel, and just decided to stay home. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of glad I did stay home, to be totally honest with you, because if I drove down there in the RV and watched that freaking mess and that field goal missed by Peyton Henry, I would have felt even worse about the freaking thing. So I'm glad I stayed home last year. That was the first Oregon-Washington game that I've missed in probably, I don't know, 20, 22, 23 years, to be honest with you. So if I had to pick one to miss, it may as well be that one. He missed it, but he gave us all a gift with that uh, rant that he did on Facebook Live. And I agree with him on targeting and uh, icing the kicker. And uh, uh, I I can't get enough of playing that clip. He hates when I play it. I know because he never says anything when I do play it. He gets real quiet because he uh, I think he wants it to go away. He doesn't want to be like Damon Heward having to live Kenny Wheaton in the pick over and over and over again. I get the pleasure of talking to Softy more than once each season because why? Washington plays Oregon State as well. And so I want to play a little clip because I was half trolling Softy when I asked this question. But I raised the question that Oregon State might be Washington's bigger rival. I know it's not true. But I raised it to Softy just to see what he'd say, mostly to point out that the Beavers entering last year's game against the Huskies we're 8-7 and seven in their last 15 against Washington. Here's Softy's reaction to that question. Is it possible that, that Washington's real rival is Oregon State? Because in the last 15... Oh, my God. In the last you 15, about that like 10 years ago? In the last 15 times these teams have played, Washington does yeah. hold an 8-7 to seven edge. So okay. what do you think of that? See, I don't get this. I mean, I'm taking time out of my busy day. <laughs> All right. To come on the air and join you on the radio show. Help out your show, your failing show. Okay? Bring, bring some excitement to the airwaves. Oh. Get people talking. Get some buzz going on. All right. And that's the way you treat me for uh, crying out loud? All right. All Sweet, right. man. I didn't pl- no, listen. I mean, John, I'm kidding. I'm half kidding, first of all. Well, maybe like 10% kidding. You know I love Oregon, you. The way you judge this is this. Which game pisses you off the most when you lose it. All right, which game do you think about the most over the offseason when you lose it? All right, and for me, it's always going to be Washington State because it's the last game of the year. I work with these people. There's like one Duck fan I know that works here at KJR, the morning show producer, Slickhawk, Matt Mikolas. I'm not sure if you know him or not. He's an Oregon fan. But I do the afternoon show. He's on in the morning. I never have to see the guy. All right? I see Cougars every single freaking day all over this place. They're like vermin crawling around the office. It's ridiculous. So to me, the absolute worst game to lose is the Apple Cup. I mean, at least the Oregon game. When the dogs lose to Oregon, I can mute people on Twitter. I can block people on Twitter. I prefer the mute button, by the way. It's a great invention. And I don't see them. I don't see Oregon fans ever walking around town. I see Cougar fans all over the place. So the Cougs are the biggest rival for sure. But, look, man, as far as losing to Oregon, I mean, it's – it's brutal. I mean, that was a game where I thought Washington was ready, you know, maybe to get a game like that. And I thought they played their best game of the year offensively, followed that up with their second best game of the year offensively against Utah. And that's the, that's the, that's the frustration is that you've scored, what, 59 points in your last two games and you lost them both because your, your young, inexperienced defense could not hang on to leads. Okay, he gets going. I'm going to cut him off there. But, look, the point being – that this rivalry doesn't just bring out the best in players and coaches. It brings out the best in fans. It brings out the best in the honks. Like, I really do, 
when I walk into stadiums, kind of look around and I observe the fan base, right? Like, I'm an observer. That's my job, right? I go through the parking lot. I look at people at the tailgate. I, what are they eating? What are they doing? How much fun are they having? Am I envious of them or not? And I have for years walked through the parking lots at Autzen Stadium and, uh, and walked towards Husky Stadium and listened to the conversations that fans are having and then watched the way that home fans treat visiting fans in the stadium. It's not always great. But I have also listened and watched Softy in the press box. The guy's sitting like two seats from me at Husky Stadium, and he's got his hands, uh, you know, buried, his face buried in his hands. He's losing his mind. Nobody wants to sit by him because he's an emotional wreck during the games. It's a highly entertaining endeavor. One of these days, maybe this game, if Oregon starts having its way with Washington, as they might on the offensive side, I may say, hey, Softy, I'm just going to videotape you for a quarter. And I'll post it on my Instagram, at John Canzano, or I'll tweet it, at John Canzano BFT. Or I'll put it on Facebook, on the BFT uh, Facebook page. Because I think it would be highly entertaining for you to see what I see. Like, I'm there trying to work in a professional capacity, but I can't help but peek over when things aren't going right for Washington just to see what the guy's doing. What is he doing? How's he handling it? Because it doesn't always sound like he's handling it well. Like in this rant about the Ducks uniforms from 2016. The Oregon Ducks are sitting there at what, 2-3? and three? Is that right over yep. at 2-3, and three, John? 2-3. and three. Okay, they're 2-3, and three, and I'm still looking at flipping ESPN sending out Twitter alerts because of the uniforms that Oregon's going to wear for the game on Saturday. Who gives a damn? They're 2-3. and three. They're a non-factor from a national perspective, and ESPN is sending out alerts telling us what the hell uniform combination Oregon's going to wear on Saturday. Why do I care, and why should anybody care about that? And what the hell is this webfoot nonsense? Are you kidding me? How ridiculous is that? You know what? Get a kicker, kick an extra point, and wear the same damn jersey for every home game like every other stake in college football team does. This hour, you're going to hear my conversations with Bo Nix, the Oregon quarterback, and Michael Penix Jr., the Washington quarterback. And I'll give my picks for the Pac-12 weekend. My final picks will lock them in coming up later in the show. And Anna will be along for the 5 at 5. Leave it here. Tomorrow at Husky Stadium, it'll be Oregon and Washington. Uh, In this hour, I want to do something unusual. I had conversations in the summer with Bo Nix and Michael Penix Jr. They were almost back-to-back in Las Vegas at Pac-12 Media Day. And so I want to present those two interviews, or at least chunks of them, in back-to-back segments and talk a little bit about it. We've watched Bo Nix, and we're going to start with Bo at Oregon, emerge as the Heisman Trophy candidate from the University of Oregon. The billboards, the sides of the building, the campaign, all of that. Bo Nix has been nothing short of fantastic this season. 15 touchdown passes, one interception. But the conversation we had in the summer largely centered around unfinished business and why he came back. Is tomorrow's game at Husky Stadium part of that? Well, listen for yourself. Bo, we talked about Chick-fil-A. I think it was last, was it last year? Feels like a long time ago. Uh, it was like... Like a year ago. Maybe? It was after the season. After the season? Yeah, I lost track of time. I lost track of time. I don't know. I can't remember. Um, how are you doing? 
I'm doing well. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. I'm, uh, I, I've been doing a lot of interviews. You've been doing a lot of interviews. This interview is not going to be like the other interviews because I can't do it anymore. Okay. I can't just ready. talk about, you know, what are you doing in 12 formation or whatever. Yeah. We're going to – let's talk about um, this summer, getaway time. Did you get away? Did you go with family, your yeah, wife? a little bit. We went to uh, we went to Hawaii. Me and Izzy um, got away a little bit. Uh, we're on the West Coast, so we thought yeah. it would be best best time to go out there in case we um, went back East Coast. It's a long flight from the East Coast, so yeah. we went ahead and went while we were out here and had a blast. Where'd you go? Uh, we went to Maui. Okay, and it was great. It was uh, one of the more fun vacations I've been on. Um, the place was great. Vacation spot, yeah, ideal. Did you, uh, when you go on a vacation like that, do you want, do you have to go ziplining and go to the luau, or do you just like to sit? I like to sit, but while I'm there, I might as well do a little bit of it. Yeah. I can't just sit the whole time. Yeah, I get sunburned, get <laughs> right? So, uh, so yeah, we did the whole, uh, the excursions. Well, we did plenty of sitting. Don't get me yeah. wrong. Um, but at the end of the day, we did a little bit of what Hawaii had to offer. You guys, you kind, you decided to come back. Huge. Uh, bit of enthusiasm for the Oregon fans. Uh, what drove that decision for you? Well, at the end of the day, you know, last year didn't end how I wanted it to, and I want a chance to, uh, you know, win something before I get out of college. Yeah. The At the end of the year, it literally looked like they were sitting you on a stool behind center and just having you throw passes. Cause you're, That's what it felt like. Yeah, you were, I mean, the mobility was an issue, mm -hmm. but... That was. What did you learn from that experience? Do you learn anything from that? I learned that I can make any throw from the pocket. I just got to go out there and, uh, you know, now that it's in the in the bank, you know, it's you got to figure out when to use it and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And at the same time, you're mobile. That's one of your strengths. So when do you use that? And so I just got there with feel and, you know, whatever I yeah. feel, I, I, I let loose and I go with it. I saw you and Cam Rising have that moment after that Utah game where you guys kind of found each other mm -hmm. on the field and. He told me that you guys had never really. No, we'd never met. Before. You'd never even met. No, but that's what that's why I did it because you know yeah. I never met him and heard a lot of great things about him. Watched his game. He's a tough guy. I mean, yeah. he's won back-to-back -back Pac-12 championships, and um, you know I just wanted to meet him, shake his hand. I got a lot of respect for what he did that game because he was hurt too. Yeah, not enough people talk about it, and um, you know he just. He's a warrior. I like how he plays. Um, competitive guy, tough guy. Uh, got a lot of respect for him. Yeah, he walks around here. He's got two championships, and he's you wouldn't know it. Like no, no doubt, that's just that's who he awesome. is. Two championships yeah. back to back. Cam Ward said, "I'd be wearing those rings." He, you know, kind of he called him the goat, and and uh, Cam Rising almost blushed. You know, it was like he's just that's who he is. Yeah. Leadership. Do you learn leadership, or are you born with leadership? What do you think? Uh, I think both. I think you're. You're born to kind of stand out, but then you learn as you go how to lead. Um, I think some people are born with the natural tendency to kind of like do their own thing and like reach for the stars and go out and get something and pull guys with them and all that kind of stuff. I yeah. think that's natural, but you can also learn it as you go. Um, and nobody has it all figured out because yeah. not everybody's a perfect leader because, you know, each person is um, led in different ways and you got got to meet them where they are and figure that out. Bo Nix with us, Oregon quarterback. Uh, you know, I, again, NIL. I've been talking about it with some different guys. It's the the good thing about NIL is it's keeping guys like you in college. I think for for the rest of us, it's we're getting to see you, Michael Penix Jr., Cam Rising, another year. I don't think all three of you would be back if there was wasn't NIL. How big of a factor in your decision does 
that or how does that change your decision or well, shape it? You know, it's another factor. Um, you put it in there as another factor. Um, but if the time's right to go to the league, then majority of the guys go to the league, mm-hmm. um, and they don't want to pass up that opportunity. But there's also another chance now with college. Um, you come back, and you're in a great situation. College guys are, are blessed right now, um, and you get to play more football and gain more experience. Love that. Uh, offensively, spring game, your receivers look fantastic. Yeah. They like, did, scary they? good. Like, how does that feel to have that group? Oh, as a quarterback, it's, uh, you know, the, the biggest blessing um, and we didn't even have tight ends in consideration. So once you get those guys and the running backs going, uh, we got some really good skill position players excited to use those guys. Um, you know, they're all excited for their role. Uh, we got some guys that are going to, um, you know, have even bigger roles and guys that are going to have similar roles. Um, uh, you know, I'm excited to see those guys grow and develop into those. I think that's one of my favorite parts about college is seeing guys fit in their roles, seeing guys figuring things out yeah. and uh, starting to play really good football. Let's go back to you as a freshman at Auburn. What do you know now that you you would tell that kid? Hmm. That's a great question. Uh, you know, honestly, I think I'd go back and tell him that you don't have to single-handedly win games on your own. Um, you know, if it's not there for whatever reason, if things are covered, throw it away, punt. Yeah. If that means you lose, you lose. But yeah. it doesn't just completely destroy your, um, you know, resume and narrative. But at the same time, uh, myself at freshman would have listened because I would have refused to lose. And so yeah. um, that's my greatest gift and greatest curse, I think, is um, you know, refusal to lose, wanting to do everything to win. And at times it may have looked like that was the reason we lost. Um, and you know, I was at the end of the day, you gotta be okay with that. Yeah. You, if you're gonna be the reason win, reason loss. I mean, it's the quarterback position. It's part of it. Um, but at the same time, you know, I was just competitive. Um, you know, I was an Auburn guy through and through. I didn't want to see Auburn lose. Yeah. I think, too, when, you, uh, when you're at that age, you get some wisdom. You know, you've had some life. You've lived a little. You've exactly. struggled. You've succeeded. You look back and go, hey, it wasn't, maybe it wasn't as big as it felt at the time. No doubt. That's a good you way know? to put it. Yep. You know, nothing's ever as bad or as good as you think it is. That's Amen I always that. say that. To, I always say that on the show. Amen to that. You don't become a bad quarterback overnight. You don't become a great quarterback overnight. The uh, Dan Lanning, how is he different as a year two head coach? Well, you know, he's uh, he's not playing any games. He um, is really devoted to this thing. He has yeah. really, um, you know, put everything into it. Um, and you know, you can see that from afar. Uh, last year, he was. Um, first year he was so, um, you know, into, um, you know, like getting the team together, working, getting everything, getting after it. But this year he's taking it to a whole nother level. Um, and I think that that's going to be, um, an important part of our success. Um, is just to have a head coach like that, that kind of demands it out of us. Um, you know, that's his job. He would tell you he's not supposed to be your best friend. Um, he's supposed to be your coach. And sometimes that's bringing the tough part out of it. I had a source that told me that the plane ride here was a bit of an adventure for you guys. Get on the plane. They tell you, hey, the engines aren't communicating. You get off the plane. Then they reboot it like you're starting up your, uh, you know, your computer. And uh, you get back on the plane. Were you, were you, are you a nervous flyer? You hear something like that? Do you go, eh? Or? No. I mean, if it happens, it happens. i got to have faith that it's yeah. not going to happen. Right. You know, I gotta think that those guys are professionals too, and if they're taking the plane up in the air, 
then feel better they about feel it. Feel good. Yeah, I mean, they're a part of the ride too. It's not like they're <laughs> remote controlling this thing. Right. Um, they're up there in the air. So if they feel confident, I feel confident. I've never really gotten um, you know plane anxiety. I enjoy it. I think it's relaxing. And um, you know what I. Um, the source would be correct. Where'd you hear that from? Uh, I got people. Yeah, you got. I got some people. Yeah, in the program. Inside source. Yeah, huh? uh, yeah. It was an eventful trip, uh, but we were just practicing adversary, adverse situations there. Yeah. We wanted to see how people would respond. You know, if we got into a situation maybe in yeah. the future to where things didn't go right. You know, um, I mean, we you got to practice all those muscles. Like you got to yeah. practice that kind of situation too. Yeah, I like that. Bo Nix is with us. All right, before I cut you loose. Um, we see you guys, like Michael Penix Jr. standing not far away, and Cam Ward and Cam Rising. You know, we watch you guys kind of on the field. But how you, you said you just met Rising last year? You hadn't even met him. Mm -hmm. How much time do you guys spend talking now that you know each other? Or do you stay in touch? Or uh, I mean, is it hard? Well, you see, it's, yeah. it's just hard. And yeah. you got your daily circle, and you got your lives, and um, you know. I mean, I'm sure if one of us reached out to the other, you get an, an immediate response, but. Um, you know, at the same time, we're still competitors, so we don't want to become best friends because then it'd be mm -hmm. hard to beat the other. Um, but um, you know, there's great resources. Um, you know, they're exciting to to play against. Um, but you got great respect for them. Um, like Michael Penix, you know, we were um, at a Tennessee camp back in 2016 together, uh, just yeah. camping, like yeah. just going and. Oh hey, I'm Bo. What's up? I'm Michael. And then next thing you know, you're rivals. Yeah. And then you're playing right. against each other after yeah. you went to separate schools. Yeah. You're both at so, different schools. Exactly. Yeah. And then um, you transfer and you end up playing against each other. So it's a small world and crazy how life does that. Yeah. You're on a journey, man. I appreciate you stopping by and giving us some of your time. Um, before I let you go, um, last season you said it didn't end how you wanted it to end. Do you get kind of that unfinished business feeling from other guys or is it just you or as a team do you talk about that stuff yeah we talk about it as a team and you know um we all want to win a championship and there's plenty of guys around that locker room who have been so close who yeah. haven't yet uh the hunger is there and the drive's there so now we just got to put it all together um you you guys are picked fourth Oregon is not usually picked fourth it's usually first or second what are people looking at or do you even care when people go, oh, they, yeah. I don't Do you know. put it on your shoulder? Yeah. No. I mean, it's just a prediction. Yeah. Um, I think it's you and USC in the title game. Yeah. I, I do. Well, now with the, you know, what's crazy about the Pac-12 is probably, as the schedule permits, the Pac-12 championship game is probably going to be played in the regular season, too. So mm -hmm. it's going to be a rematch, um, maybe, of teams. And that's unique. Yeah. Uh, hard to beat a team twice or, you know, hard to play a team twice. Um, so that that's what's unique about it. And I mean, whatever. We still got to go out there and play. Yeah. I could come out here and predict something, too, and that may not happen. So yeah. I, I think that's the joy of football, and that's why you go out there and, um, you know, put it on the line and play against each other, see what happens. Caleb Williams, uh, I said that, you know, Oregon fans really wanted to see you, you guys in USC last year in the title game. He said he wanted to see it, too, and he's looking forward to it this year. I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. I'm that, surprised he said that. That he would say that. Yeah. yeah. But I, I don't. you don't strike me as the kind of person that would say that. Like, well, you know? Well, in what? In what, what it, I don't want to give him. Why say it? There's no upside in. Oh, yeah. You well, know? I've gotten, I've gotten guided in interviews before and said some stuff that, like, I got in trouble for. Right. So, I mean, <laughs> everybody. What's the worst thing? Like, you got. Oh, there's, there's so much. Because of it, like calling out officials and all this yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. But that's, I mean, 
part of it. It's dumb on my part. Won't do it again, but yeah. I, gotta... I go back though. How old are you now? I'm 23, and I was probably 20 when I was talking about it. Yeah. 21. Come on. I was saying, talking to older guys who are just trying to fish for a story yeah, sometimes. I uh, I remember being 20. I would have said worse <laughs> than whatever you said. No, you live and you learn. I've gotten pl plenty of calls to yeah. the uh, head coach's office. <laughs> right. Saying, hey, why would you say that? Because I meant it. Like, yeah. sorry. Yeah, I didn't know. I would, yeah. Yeah, it gets it gets just gets the gets the juices flowing. You I know, am. it's sometimes sometimes good. I haven't said anything yeah. detrimental. That's yeah. Like, the worst thing ever, but surprised he would, I'm surprised he said that. A couple things become evident in that interview with Bo Nix that I did in July at Pac-12 Media Day. One, I mean, obviously unfinished business. He comes back to Oregon. Certainly NIL plays a role in that. But, you know, the way that last season sort of ended, ended for Oregon or fizzled out at the end of the year, it, it all centered around the injury that Bo Nix suffered in the Washington game. So keep an eye on that tomorrow. Chip on his shoulder? Chip on the duck's shoulder? I don't know. Up next, you'll hear my interview from the summer with Michael Penix Jr. He has thrown for 300 or more yards in all five games this season. And he's first in college football in passing yards per game. Michael Penix Jr. at the center of the Washington effort in tomorrow's game in this uh, rivalry series. He also told me he's got unfinished business. Leave it here. This hour, you've already heard from Softy from KJR in Seattle. Really good uh, segment, about a 20-minute segment of some of the highlights of his visits on this show over the years. I couldn't even begin to scratch the surface. I have so much Softy material, the vault goes deep with that guy. That's how big a honk he is. We'll bring him back on in front of the Oregon State game later. I'm joining his show later today, so uh, I'm trying to figure out you know, how I should play that. But uh, you know he's bound to it's bound to be it's bound to sound like a pregame show because that's what you know it sounds like when you get a bunch of Washington fans in the same room talking about how great they are. But uh, I may interrupt that by informing them that I think Oregon's going to win the football game, even though Softy Down Deep probably knows that. Uh, Michael Penix Jr. You haven't heard from him yet on this show. I interviewed him in July. Really <laughs> interesting interview with Penix, who arrived at the media table doing a FaceTime with his younger brother, his 18-year-old brother, who was having car problems. Listen to this interview. I think it's charming. Washington quarterback Michael Penix Jr. has stepped into the uh, Pac-12 Media Day studio. He is dealing with a family issue right now. And I look, I grew up with four siblings. I understand what you're doing. He was just on the phone with his brother who's having a car problem, the best I can understand it. What is going on with the brother's car? He's trying to figure out. Uh, so I gave him one of my cars. Yeah, uh, but so he's trying to figure out what what a light uh, one of the um oh the light the came, on? came on yeah so I'm trying to help him <laughs> look at you I like that younger brother yeah that's how it works right. that, that's part of it how are you doing I'm good how about you I'm good I'm it's hot outside I've done a million interviews probably like you have done as part of media day and uh, I want to do a different kind of interview I just want to get to know you a little bit have our listeners get to know you in the state of Oregon and you can see all the all the interviews I've talked with, all, you know, it's very interesting to see the different styles and get to know people. But yeah. um, you, this summer, what did you do? Did you get away, something away from football? Uh, I just picked up the golf club. So I've been, I started golfing, uh, trying to get better at that. And I've been out on the lake fishing as well, too. Good. Uh, what are you better at, fishing or golfing right now? Fishing right now. That's what I've been doing all my life. So. Really? 
Okay, so this has come up with uh, two different players. Tell me about Travis Hunter's a big fisherman. He's got a boat now. He just bought a boat. And so he's been fishing. But what do you fish for? Where would you grow up fishing? Yeah, um, I, I fish for everything. We go fishing out, uh, deep sea fishing sometimes. I get out in the water um, in Florida. But I fish for grouper, snapper, yeah, uh, a lot of tropical fish, you know, that you yeah. don't really see on the west side. So. Yeah. Do, do you like getting back home to go fishing back where you're from? Yeah, for Cause sure. Because you know it there. Yeah, yeah. Different water. I'm the... just not learning the fishing. Anymore. Yeah. It's Washington. it's harder. I think it's harder. And then there's a lot of river fishing and stuff and lake fishing, yeah. and it's different when you get into that. The, the people who grow up in Florida, by the way, your mom drove across the country to the bowl game or drove to the bowl game. Yeah. And what a what a circus that was with the airline tickets and everything. Yeah, it was crazy. It's crazy. She loves you. Your parents yeah, yeah. love you, man. You know. Yeah, they've they always been there to support me. Yeah. No matter what. So. All right. Growing up in your family, you were dealing with uh, helping your brother out. Um, what's the family dynamic? How many kids in the Penix family? Yeah. So um, we have both parents, and uh, yeah. I got two younger brothers. Okay. I'm the oldest, one eighteen and one thirteen. Wow. What is that like for you? Probably your biggest fans. Yeah, yeah. Those are the guys. They're who I do it for. Yeah. Who I do it for. Tell me about the 13-year-old. What's he like? He's big. <laughs> is he a big kid? Yeah, he's almost six foot tall at 13 years old. Really? What does he What does he play? What's he into? He's at D-line right now. Okay. Yeah, he's probably a defensive end. Okay. It's all said and done. All right. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. But you've been through it now. Your parents have been through it, too, with the, you know all the recruiting and stuff like that. You can help them a little bit. It's yeah. A, it's a big for advantage. Sure. For sure. Uh, what made you come back? What? Aside from, you know, NIL and all that, but was there was that just it, or do you come back because there's something unfinished? It was no, it wasn't even about NIL at all. You really? know, it was just unfinished business. You know, we had goals uh, to win Pac-12 championship, and we didn't even get get there. So um, that was one of the reasons, and also just being in the system for another year with the, this group of guys is going to be special. The uh, I thought you guys were playing the best football at the end of last season. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you you had to feel that way too. You, toward, you know the Oregon game, the Apple Cup. Yeah, you guys were just playing so well. It did. How much did it hurt to not get to Vegas to get a shot? Yeah, it hurt a lot, but um, we left it in somebody else's hands, and, and we can't do that. You know, we yeah. got to win. We got to win all our games so that uh, it, it's a no question for us. So um, we we still gonna remember, and we still got that chip on our shoulder. Yeah, Michael Penix Jr. is with us. Washington quarterback, uh, the comfort that you have with Kalen DeBoer, how valuable is that when it comes to your success? Um, you know, it's very valuable. He, he's mainly the reason why I came all the way out to Washington. And, um, you know, as far as my success, you know, he's he's the one that, that created the offense that we have. But, you know, he allows Coach Ryan Grubb to call it. You know, he's been with Coach Grubb for 12-plus uh, years now. Yeah. And um, so, so they've been together. So, um, it, it, they just make me feel so comfortable back there, and you know, I know every time I, I take a snap, uh, I, I have opportunity to, to do something great. Your uh, tattoo on your right bicep, Interstate 75. Yeah. That a nod to home? Yeah, I 75. I stayed yeah. off I 75. Yeah. Did uh, any other tattoos? What? Tell me the meaning of what. What do you have going there? Yeah, I got Tampa Bay Tech. That's my high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I got some palm trees to show Florida. Yeah. I got an outline of the uh. The, the state of Florida, I got a street that, this isn't a street I grew up on, but yeah. this is a street where... State Street? Yeah, State Street is a street that 
basically made me into the to the athlete I am today. You know, yeah. that's where we played football on the road, yeah. basketball. We did all the sports on State Street. Yeah. Um, this one's for my friends. I got my mom's name. Yeah. I got my favorite verse, Jeremiah, uh, twenty nine eleven. Um. And yeah, that's about it. I got some stuff on my chest and my oh. stomach too. It's interesting. When did, what was your first tattoo? Uh, probably the ones on the back of my arm, my initials. Yeah. yeah. When I was about seventeen. Yeah. Was that too young to get a tattoo, or do you? Nah, it, it wasn't too young. I know people that got. Yeah. Got it when they were thirteen. Yeah, but I see sometimes I'll see like an older guy who have like a tattoo of like a cartoon character, and I'll think. You probably should have thought that through. Yeah. Like you, when you're 80, that's not going to hold up. But this stuff has meaning to you. Yeah, like it's all, it's all meaning to you. State Street. Tell me about the games on State Street. How competitive were they? Oh my gosh, man! I was always the youngest guy growing up on State Street. Yeah. Um, and it was just all my older cousins and my older friends. You know, we always yeah. used to play football on the road. And man, I got marks on my on my <laughs> body still from those games. Yeah. You know, but uh, it was it was a basketball every once in a uh, yeah. every once in a while. Manhunt, which is like basically it's a big hide and go seek. Uh huh. Um, Manhunt was the name of it. You guys, what yeah, you guys called Manhunt, it? Yeah. <laughs> and how did you t did you have to tag each other or did you yeah, have to you hit? Gotta tag them. You have to actually tag them or yeah, you have to hit them nah, with something. You gotta tag them. Okay. And then uh, when you played football, did how did you get a first down in your game? So it was it was throw the ball back and we played light pole to light pole. Okay. So like light pole to light pole. Do you have it's four touchdown. downs? It's no first down. No first it, down. It's everybody for themselves. Yeah. So I love that. I love that. I say the most people that was ever on the road at the same time was maybe like around ten people. Yeah. You got to think about a road. Yeah. You got ten people. It's gonna be hard for you to score. Yeah. So, uh, um, <laughs> it, it basically just it basically made us very athletic. Cause yeah. You got to avoid ten people in this small radius. Yeah. And like, you can deal with eleven on a yeah, on a football field right. <laughs> if you yeah, can deal with that. For sure. I love that. That's that's great. Hey, thank you for stopping by. Of course. I I hope this interview was different. Than your other interviews, your brother did he figure out the light issue with the car? Yeah, I'm about. I'm gonna call him back and see. Call him and make sure he's stressing out because you know in his world he does not want to mess your car up. Yeah. And that's what he's thinking is like yeah, I don't want to. He got it now though. It's his. So yeah. He's gonna mess it up. Soon. <laughs> I know. All right, Michael Penix Jr. Thank you. All right, coming up, Anna's popping into the studio. We'll have the five at five. I'll lock in my picks. A lot of discussion still ahead. Uh, Oregon State, UCLA on Saturday. Let's not forget about them. Uh, Anna, with not necessarily the news coming up. <laughs> remember that Remember that on cable TV? used to be not necessarily the news. Um, I really enjoyed this last hour. I, I don't know if you enjoyed it as much as I did. If, if you have an Oregon fan or a Washington fan who will be going to the game or somebody commuting even to the Oregon State game, that would be a great hour of radio to podcast on the way, uh, you'll uh, you'll make the drive feel that much shorter. And that's part of the aim of this radio show, to make your drives feel just a little shorter. Penix and Bo Nix, which one of those guys is going to throw more touchdown passes in the game? I know Penix becomes the easy pick, but I'm not sure. I think Oregon's got the better defense. Will they force Washington to run the ball a little bit? Is that what Dan Lanning's going to do? I think Oregon wants this one. How badly? We'll find out tomorrow at Husky Stadium. Leave it here. The 5 at 5 is coming up. Well, I've been doing a lot of introspection on today's show. We've had a great guest. I love the last hour of radio. We uh, we did it up, as they say in radio. As my grandfather, my, my uh, late grandfather, may he rest in peace, used to say to me, he'd call me and he'd say, that was quite a write-up as I uh, was writing something for the paper. We did it up. 
on the show. Anna's popped in. Anna, I asked a question off the top of the show today. It's Oregon, Washington week. I've spent a lot of time in Oregon, Washington. I do go kind of down the rabbit hole of the Pac-12 sometimes and talk a lot about football. The NBA preseason exhibition season is kicking off. Training camps are open. Major League Baseball playoffs. You know, we're narrowing in on the World Series participants. The NFL is in full swing. I sometimes get a little myopic, and I'm asking the question, am I a bad radio show host for being myopic, or is it good that I focus on the things I care about? You have programmed television news and been in charge of a lot of those decisions on what gets in a newscast and what doesn't. How do you make those decisions in that world? Well, I mean, I think the number one thing is to know your audience. So I think you are programming your radio show and your content tailored to what your audience wants to listen to. And I think after doing this for like how many years, like 20 years now, uh, you probably have a pretty strong sense that when you talk about that kind of stuff, people are interested in it. I think there's lots of places for people to talk about Major League Baseball and the NBA and the NFL. I mean, I think that content is covered in a lot of different ways. People may still, and I know they're still interested in your take on certain things uh, in those arenas, but um, I mean, this is... This is kind of the world that we live in. It's kind of what people around here, the people we live around, um, are are talking about. So I think it's reflective of that. TV news is very similar, where it's like you have to know your audience. I would say in TV news, the decision comes to, do you give people what they want to hear in combination with what they actually need to hear? And so, like, they may want to see really outrageous video of, um, you know, random thefts and crime happening or train wrecks and things like that, that may be what gets them to sort of tune in and be curious, but they actually also need to know about tax levies and elections that are coming up and things that um, actually have an impact on their lives. It's interesting when you say that need to hear, I, I think immediately to social media and the algorithms that happen on TikTok and Instagram, Facebook, Twitter to some extent that, you know, you start to get people who get groupthink going because they you start to get only the stuff you're interested in. Uh, fed to you or so are you saying that like there's a room full of people in tv stations that are sitting around going listeners may not want to hear this but this is good they need to take their medicine and listen like but and who gets to make that what if the people in the room are nuts like what if they're wrong well i mean it is uh, there is discussion i believe that goes on all the time on a daily basis about what stories are covered but it is why social media is is a little bit dangerous in that way because you know, based on what we watch, we are only fed more of what we already watch. And so we just live in these echo chambers of our opinions. And that's kind of dangerous, right? Because you, you still need to be able to expose yourself to opinions and thoughts and ideas that aren't already in the channels that you already that you operate in. There should be a social media app that gives you nothing that you're interested in, but only the stuff that you probably don't want to hear, but you need to hear. Like, you know, financially irresponsible people, their algorithm would give them, like, tips on saving money, how to use a 401k, and they'd be like, no, as they're watching it. But you're forced to use this app five minutes a day. That's like a Black Mirror episode, you know? Like, for me, it would be, you're forced to watch NHL hockey and become an five minutes of this and become an expert on it right now, damn it, because it's what's good for you and your radio audience. And for me, it would be like, instead of constantly seeing videos of 
top 10 items that you need to get that are on Amazon right now, it would be like budget saving. You know, here's how to cut down on your shopping and not use all of your discretionary income buying things that you don't need for your house. We're going to move on now to the five at five. Anna has sat in a room with a team of experts and deemed that this is not only what you need to hear and want to hear, but that you're going to have to hear. Not necessarily the news. The five at five by Anna. Here we go. The five at five. All right. Number one, I'm going to start off with um, a couple stories about Damian Lillard that caught my eye just because I'm really still curious about how this is all going to play out. Um, Bleacher Report has this uh, story about how he's already loving life next to his Milwaukee Bucks co-star. He's saying that, uh, you know, being on Giannis's team is basically like, you know, having him as a law partner is like having a cheat code in a game. Uh, you know, like I'm happy for him. I am excited for him and I, I wish him the best. I want to see what he and Giannis are able to accomplish in Milwaukee this season. This isn't like a celebrity relationship that you need to root for, okay? This is a NBA team, two players, highly compensated. Giannis already has a NBA championship and two MVPs. This is about how Damian Lillard's going to fit in alongside Giannis, in my book. Does a guy who was used to being Batman in Portland, is he able to, to adjust to the role of being Robin in Milwaukee? It's still a small market. You still have some of the challenges of a small market. It's a different conference. But I think there's going to be a lot of eyes on Damian Lillard. How does he fit in? Can he stay healthy? Will he be able to take a supporting role? He struggled a little bit with that at times in watching him play for Team USA, but it was a small sample size. I'm interested to see how he fits in, what it looks like. I don't care if it's a cheat code or not. If the Milwaukee Bucks don't get to the NBA Finals... With Giannis and Damian Lillard, it's not going to be Giannis's fault. If people, the narrative will be that it was Damian Lillard, much in the same way we've seen other star players bounce around, and it doesn't happen for them either. Number two, I'm sticking with the Damian Lillard story because there's another story that uh, I'm interested in. So there's a reporter named Ben Mallard who says he's been kind of poking around about what actually happened with Damian Lillard and how he wanted to be traded at the Heat, but it didn't happen. He's saying that he's spoken to anonymous NBA sources and that from what he's gathered, Portland was prepared to send Lillard to Miami. And then his agent, Aaron Goodwin, finagled and gave some comments to the media that rubbed several people in Portland the wrong way. And it was at that point that the Blazers pivoted. It was at that point that Lillard's agent had embarrassed the franchise. So I want to know what you think. Like this Damian Lillard to Miami thing, was it really viable? Was it on its way to happening? And then somehow his agent like blew it up? Well, I think there's a couple things that became clear to all of us as we watched it play out. One, Aaron Goodwin was meddling, maneuvering. This is what agents do. But I don't think it was playing well with the Blazers organization. They didn't like being presented a list of one team. Here's the, here's the, here's the places I'll go. And, you know, he put Miami in front of him. That's not a list when you give your employer one option. It, it was, it's, that was a demand. And so that, I don't think, sat well with the Blazers. Further, I think the Blazers were looking for the best possible deal for themselves. They weren't going to fall over themselves to try to get Damian Lillard to where he wanted to be. 
the Blazers were looking out for their future, and I don't blame them for that. Some of this revisionist stuff is good. Like, I like knowing, you know, how the sausage is made or take me behind the curtain, give me some palace intrigue. But I'm waiting to see some people go on the record with this. I'd like to hear Aaron Goodwin's side of this story on the record, not through reporters, on the record. I'd like to hear Joe Cronin talk about it. Let's sit people down. Unfortunately, as we all know, that will eventually happen, but it'll take time. And it'll take some of the principal parties not being in their current roles in order to get the real story. So I think this season, we're going to get Lillard's return to Portland as a Milwaukee Buck. We're going to get a lot of drama there. The story's going to crop back up again. We're going to get, you know, if this if this doesn't work out for Portland trade-wise, some questions about whether or not they could have got a better deal in Miami. If it does work out, they're going to be lauded for doing the right thing for the organization. This is, um, this is all just part of, uh, I guess, the process in seeing a superstar player leave your market leave your town i can tell you there have been worse cases like look around at you know some of the players like james harden kevin durant chris paul getting out of new orleans there have been some cases where there were really bad feelings Shaq leaving orlando to go to to go to the lakers i mean there, there's just there's it never it's never a happy thing especially for the small market team getting left behind number three okay um Let's stay with the NBA, and let's chat a little about Dylan Brooks. What's going on with him? We know him, right? He was from Oregon, so we kind of know him. But he's now a Houston Rocket, and he just got fined $25,000 for a preseason game in which he hit Indiana Pacers player Daniel Thies in the groin. Like, this is, like, ultimately the Rockets won, and Dylan Brooks is definitely uh, developing like this like, reputation. I guess he was ejected from the game. It was on the live broadcast. Brooks connected with uh, the nether region of Thies, and Thies was clearly in pain. He went punching down, then kneeled down on the court. What's what's happening with Brooks? Yeah, look, he didn't have this reputation at Oregon. We saw him as a scorer. We saw him as a hard-nosed player. He wasn't a greatest athlete on the floor but you know you as you talk to people in the nba they will tell you that the players in the nba are elite at what they do you either can do one thing in an elite way like you can be a shot blocker you can be a scorer you can be a defender you can be a rebounder you can be an elite rebounder and do nothing else or be an elite rebounder and defender like dennis rodman or ron artest and or uh, you know meta world peace or whatever we're calling him uh, you can do that, and you can make a living in that league. But what you can't do is be a mediocre shooter slash scorer, not a great athlete, and get away with uh, you know being just a marginal or maybe a little above average defender. And you know that's where Dylan Brooks' skill set fills in. But I think he he has viewed himself as a little bit of an enforcer. He is trying to be an intimidator. Uh, He's definitely learned this while being in the NBA. He's embracing that role. I don't like it for him. I think it's a huge distraction. I think, you know, there's a lot of people who saw him play at Oregon that thought really highly of him, but now you kind of got to go, what is he doing? But it feels like an act to me that he's out there doing this stuff because it's an act. And, you know, at the same time, we're we're watching, like, George Kittle of the 49ers find $13,000 for wearing a T-shirt that says F Dallas under his shirt. And Dylan Brooks... 
hitting somebody in the family jewels and getting what twenty five thousand dollars that doesn't seem like a fair scale to me like that it should be a little more for brooks and a little less for the t-shirt number four okay uh shudder sanders wow his nil valuation is at the top of the list like way way at the top of the list uh the entity on three projects that sanders has a $4.8 million name image likeness valuation. That is $2 million higher than the next closest college player. That's Arch Manning of Texas. Um, So obviously big names here at the top. Caleb Williams, by the way, comes in a close third behind Arch Manning at $2.7 million. Travis Hunter's at four. J.J. McCarthy's at $1.4 million. So, I mean, listen to the list of endorsements that Shadur Sanders has. He's got Tops, he's got Beats by Dre, Under Armour, Gatorade, and Mercedes-Benz. And, of course, with the reference to his watch that he keeps making, uh, you know, Dad, Coach Prime, is saying that they're working on getting him a lucrative watch deal. Do you think, okay, right now, I, I want your prediction. Is he going to stay in college and not go to the NFL because why would he? Well, I, I think when you look at the first-round salaries, that's why. I mean, it's significantly more money. Those contracts in the first round can be worth, uh, you know, let me look at the first round. 2023 NFL draft, the salary for the first-round pick, it's a $41 million contract for the first round. Now, the money he's making makes him about a third-round NFL draft pick. So there is kind of a, um, you know, a debate there. It's, it's a dilemma because on one hand, yeah, you're right. I think Caleb Williams is another guy at USC. Bo Nix, Michael Penix Jr. I think there was a reason Bo Nix and Michael Penix Jr. came back. Part of the reason was unfinished business, as those guys are saying, right, in their interviews that you heard on the show today. But also, it's more than unfinished business. It's business. Like, those guys are making seven figures to play college football. That hasn't happened before. So we are seeing some players go, hey, the NFL can wait a little bit. I can get some insurance. Maybe I can develop and grow a little bit. I'm not in as much a hurry because I'm doing all right, and I like what I'm doing here. So this is a positive byproduct of NIL. But, you know, Shador Sanders, $4.8 million, that's going to put him as like a third-round guy in the NFL draft. Maybe it gives him pause. Maybe he says, I want to play for my dad one more year. Maybe he says, I want to play in the Big 12 where I know I can have more success. Um, and it gives him a lot to think about. But, yeah, when the minute he pointed to his wristwatch, I went, here comes the NIL deal, and here it is right on time. Number five. Rolex, he's calling. Okay, this is the last one, and I, I, I can't even – I mean, I can believe it, but I can't believe it. A Missouri youth football coach claims that he was shot by a parent because of the son's playing time. Honestly, this is where it's gotten. So a youth football coach, volunteer coach, by the way, in St. Louis, says he was shot four times during a practice Tuesday night by a parent who was allegedly angry that his son wasn't getting enough playing time. Shaquille Lattimore is recovering. Uh, He's in critical but stable condition. The parent previously confronted him weeks ago, he said, over his son not being a starter. And during this confrontation that wound up in a shooting, uh, the parent kept reaching into a pocket of his sweatsuit while his back was turned to the coach. Shots were fired. 
hitting him in the leg, in the arm, in the back, and the abdomen. The coach says after every game, he would try to, like, critique me. And after he shot me, he was like, I told you I was going to pop you. This is, this is insane. This is youth sports. These are 9- and 10-year-old players doing football. Yeah, this doesn't surprise me. Come on. You, you've been involved in youth sports, and you've seen people lose their minds. It was just a matter of, you know, opportunity and a, and a handgun being involved or whatever weapon was involved in, in the shooting. I'm glad he's alive. Uh, he didn't deserve that. Uh, now I understand why a lot of coaches don't want to have conversations with parents. We've had coaches that coach our kids' teams say, I, I will have the conversation with the kid. I don't want to have the conversation with the parent. And I think that is a good thing for a couple reasons. One, it trains and conditions your kid to advocate for themselves instead of having your parent run in and rescue you. And in this case, shoot the coach to try to get you some more playing time. Guess what? That's not going to get you more playing time. In fact, that's going to get dad thrown in the uh, in, in, in jail because uh, of assault and attempted murder. And that's not good for your playing time either, by the way. That team's not taking you next year. Got news for you. But I have seen parents get really upset because they do view this as a personal affront. It's, a, it's an attack on their kid, that their kid's not getting playing time. And I think it's really hard for parents to watch their kids struggle in youth sports. And you want to intervene, and you want to reach in and fix it for them and get them the playing time, and have that conversation with the coach that results in your kid playing. I've seen it firsthand. I've seen parents lose their minds. I've seen parents hold their kids back, get waivers, so they can play another year against younger kids because they want them so badly to start. It's all misguided. It's all, and I think it damages your kids, too, in a way that you don't think about. Like, I look back to my youth sports experiences, my dad, who had played professional sports, he did not intervene. You know, he did not go and talk to the coach if I wasn't playing. He did not try to rescue me from a bad call from an umpire. He did not. He let me struggle. He viewed that, I think, as my par- both my parents viewed that as a valuable thing, allowing me to struggle and work through it on my own. I, I you know, I'm a, I'm a confident person, right? It. And I think a lot of that was born from my parents allowing me to struggle, allowing me to fail safely. It wasn't like I was in a dangerous position. They allowed me to fail, and then I was able to work through it. And I I didn't work through it because my dad and mom went and complained to the coach or shot the coach. I worked through it because I put in the work, and I grew a little bit. I physically developed, and I kept working hard. And guess what? When I got success, it wasn't because – Mommy and Daddy had gone and told the coach, you know, we're moving clubs or we're moving teams if you don't start my kid. Or they didn't go talk to the director of Little League or whatever. My parents just let me struggle, and I worked through it. And I think, you know, I think that's really important for for kids. As long as your kid's in a safe position. I'm not saying leave your kid in a position where they're not safe or they're so overmatched that there's a physical danger to them. But I'm just saying if your kid is in a situation that's not fair, let them work through it. If your kid's in a situation where they're struggling to compete, let them work through it a little bit. There's nothing wrong with allowing your kid and showing your kid that you believe in them. I think it's super valuable. The guy's all right, huh? He's okay? 
Yeah, I mean, he's going to make it. It was pretty scary, as you can imagine. But, like, that's how bad it's become, people. Like, we need to get a grip. It's the kids playing the sport, not us. And, yeah, and by the way, who's volunteering to coach in that league next year? Like, you know, everybody's going, hey, maybe I take a year off from coaching. All right, coming up, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the huddles going on at your local elementary school. Plus, my picks for the week, I lock them in. Kids are off school. They've been off school for like two or three days, as far as I know, in our household. That's how tuned in I am to what is going on. Parent-teacher conference week. Uh, You heard me ask Dan Lanning yesterday, Oregon football coach, about his experience being an elementary school PE teacher during parent-teacher conference week. He said he was twiddling his thumbs because none of the parents would ever come in and talk to the PE teacher. I feel bad that I didn't go talk to the PE teacher this week as part of parent-teacher conferences. Can we just call it conference week? Uh, We all know the teacher's going to be there, and the parents ideally will show up. Although I can't remember my parents ever going to a parent-teacher conference. There was no Zoom. I don't remember. Maybe they did. Maybe I wasn't aware. Maybe I wasn't tuned into it. But uh, Anna has popped into the studio. Anna, do you remember your parents going to a parent-teacher conference? What are your recollections of that? Uh, I don't. I I think my mom went. I'm pretty sure just my mom went if she went at all. Or maybe, I don't know. I just don't remember them being such an important thing when I was little. Now it's like, you know, you got to try to get both parents to show up and... They're not even called parent-teacher conferences anymore, by the way. I think they're called student-led conferences or goal-setting. Like, there's a, they've rebranded it, John. They've rebranded it. And so now, like, when you walk in, for us at least, it was like the kids leading the conference. Here are my goals. Here's what I'm good at. Here's what I think I can be better at and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's funny because as uh, I've been, as an employee, I've been in goal-setting meetings or I've been in those uh, evaluations, those annual evaluations, and uh, and uh, they're oh, you always come out of there feeling worse than you go in. You just do, like even though you know, like you could be killing it, and I, you know, and then they'll go, hey, you know, we need a few more clicks out of you, you know, in the newspaper world. It's part of why I'm not in the newspaper world anymore. But it, you know, we need a few more clicks out of you. Can you shorten up what you're writing? Write shorter posts and more frequently. So you can have more clicks. Um, I was glad we didn't hear that in our kids' uh, parent-teacher conference. But what are you looking for as a parent? I want to know if we're on the same page. We haven't talked about this. What are you looking for when we show up at our kids' school and we talk to this human being that they're spending all day with? What are you trying to get out of this meeting? You really want to know? Because I have a very, I don't know why, I have very low expectations when I go. All I'm looking for is any sign that our kid is a jerk. And if there, if that's, if there's even a hint that our kid is a jerk in the class, then I'm seizing upon that, and I need to like do an immediate course correction. I'm not as worried about the academics. It's really funny because like, you know, teachers are all different. So some of them will really break down. Like, here's the curriculum we're working on. Here's your kid's test scores and whatnot. And I'm like, dude, they're in second and fourth grade. I, I think I'm okay. I'm all right as long as they're moderately making progress. Uh, mostly I just want to know that they are decent human beings in the classroom. Is that is that lame? Why is that important to you? Because I think at this age, that's actually what is the most important thing that they're learning. I mean, 
I could be alone in thinking that, but like, I think the academics will come. Um, I just, I, yeah, we all eventually learn to read and we all eventually learn to do math and we all sort of eventually learn to spell some better than others. Um, but it's more for me at this point, like I want them to be having a joyful experience of learning and learning how to get along with other people. Like at nine and seven years old, those are the skills that I'm way more focused on. You're, you're hitting on something that I think I've talked to a couple of educators about, that parents are leaning more on teachers these days to help parent their kids. Isn't that a parenting thing? Like, shouldn't we be in charge of whether or not our kids are jerks? Well, yeah, absolutely. But, like, I need the confirmation that they're not being jerks when they're not away from us. Like, if they're, you know, directly within a line of sight and they're being jerks, we can call them out on it and be like, hey, stop being a jerk. But the integrity part is who are they when we're not watching, right? And so uh, that's what I'm trying to check in with the teachers about is, like, I want to know who our children are as people in social settings and – um you know, I, I think the learning will come. I don't know. Am I naive? I, but I do I do think, okay, so I think it depends. If we're talking about a kindness thing, I agree with you. I want my, I want our kids to be kind. I want them to be, um, you know, people who are unifiers that, uh, you know, don't exclude other kids. I don't, I don't want our kids being bullies. But I also think, like, some of the same things that make people successful in life, ambition, um, you know, leaders, visionary thinking, some of those same things can be misinterpreted in a classroom setting as, you know, this this kid's not a team player or this kid is questions things all the time. And, you know, I'm not saying I want our kids to be adversarial because I often will end discussions with our kids by saying, end of discussion. That's how that's my thing <laughs> to the point where the seven year old is like, dad, just because you say end of discussion doesn't mean that's the end of the discussion. And then I say end of discussion. But I, I think some of those same things that make you successful in life also can make you a little abrasive and obnoxious. And look at some of the visionary leaders in business and in politics, and they are sometimes difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a balance. I just, I don't want them to be wallflowers. Like, I don't want them to get trampled and, you know, putting everybody else's needs in front of their own. But, uh, like, I want them to have that thirst for learning, and I want them to have that intellectual curiosity. I'm just not as worried about, you know, are they doing their work perfectly like is their artwork amazing and are they spelling everything right and that kind of stuff like i think at this age i i I just think a lot of us can get caught up in that kind of stuff and i i'm not you don't think parents when they go to school they look at the artwork on the wall and they're like look at my kids artwork my kids in a class with a bunch of morons what is this How how did my kid end up in this situation my kid should be advanced my kid should be in the next grade you know, and uh, I think parents are all a little bit delusional, not quite in a sports way delusional. You know how in sports, like on the club teams, most of the parents who are showing up are going, my kid's going to get a scholarship. You know, my kid should be trying out for the junior Olympic team. And then, you know, you ask another parent and they're like, your kid is just pretty good, you know, and just kind of blends in there. Um, what I'm looking for in a, um, in a uh, parent-teacher conference, I am evaluating the teacher the whole time. It's very little, to your point. You're there to make sure our kid is kind of on the rails, not being an idiot, not being obnoxious. I, I don't mind a little chatter. I don't mind when the teachers say, you know, I have to remind your kid sometimes to 
you know, stop having that side conversation with their neighbor. You know, I'm okay with a kid talking to their neighbor a little bit. That's networking, people. But I also um, don't want a kid to be disrespectful to the teacher, so I'm listening for that stuff. But beyond that, I'm looking at the teacher and I'm evaluating how comfortable is this person in their role? Do they have all the resources they need? Because let's face it, teachers coming out of the pandemic in particular had two problems. One, they weren't getting the resources they needed from their school districts and their immediate you know, setting. And two, they were dealing with kids who had spent about two years outside of a classroom. This was not an easy task. Like I could see a lot of teachers who were maybe in their late 50s, early 60s, I in the finish line coming out of the pandemic because it was not what they signed up for. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I feel like they're still dealing with a lot of that. Like kids um, are not quite as independent learners as they should be at the grade levels that they're at. And, you know, I'm looking for the teacher as far as, like, do they know my kid? Do they know, like, who our kid actually is? Or are they just giving us the sort of generic everything's great kind of thing? Um, are they kind of organized in what they're talking about as we're going through the conference? And then, you know, the other thing, too, is, like, I know we always kind of try to ask the teachers, hey, like, what do you need help with? Because teachers often, like, they, they will tell you they're constantly dipping into their own pocket to buy books and art supplies and other things to, um, you know, enhance their teaching. And, you know, like I always try to ask them, like, hey, do you need help in the classroom? That sort of thing. Like, would it help if I showed up and helped read to the kids once a week or something like that? Like, I want the teachers to feel like, you know, they're not in this alone and that we're partnering with them. I remember there's this Sebastian Maniscalco bit where he talks about his dad not even knowing where his school was. You know, where he doesn't even know where the elementary school is. Um, I, my parents knew where the school was. I just don't, I don't remember sitting with them unless I was in trouble. I, I had a couple times where I got notes home. I got no, I got a note home in third grade because there was a big fiasco on the playground involving a, uh, was supposed to be a two-hand touch football game that turned into a tackle football game. Like the principal for the school, who, by the way, had hairy arms, Frank, Frank Ginelli, Mr. Ginelli had, he was Italian, you know, I like the guy, but he had the hairiest arms that I've ever seen on a human being. I mean, he literally would sit at his desk and he'd be talking to you about, you know, you shouldn't be playing tackle football in the playground, here's why. I'm completely distracted by the fur on his arms. And, the, and it's just going every direction. It was thick, matted, dark hair. Like, it, it, it was Frank Ginelli should have been wearing long sleeves at, at every turn. But he, uh, I got a note home, a letter home one time. My parents had to go to the school because we continually played tackle football when we were supposed to be playing two-hand touch. and It was a big problem. And then uh, Jerome Henderson, who was somewhere between the age of 15 and 30 when he, we were in the third grade, uh, it, Jerome had uh, tackled somebody, and then I threw a football at him, and then Mr. Ginelli called me in and said, you could have killed Jerome. And I took that as a compliment. Like, yeah, is my spiral that good? Like, did I have that kind of arm? Like, Andrew Luck move over? Like, and Jerome and I became friends in high school. We played football together, but it was like, uh, you know, he was chasing somebody down, and I was like, I, my only defense was that hard rubber football, and I threw a spiral and tagged Jerome with it. And Jerome punted it on the roof of the elementary school. I'm sure it's still there to this day. But Frank Ginelli called us in, all of us. Jerome and I had to sit in there and pretend like we liked each other. And uh, 
And uh, in the end, it was uh, a big much ado about nothing. But I do remember my parents having to come to the school for that one. I'm sure they don't remember it. But I, I was real, I was happy with the conferences. The kids seemed happy. You know, I was expecting a little more uh, constructive criticism. But, you know, the kids seemed happy. The teachers seemed happy. Everybody kind of likes the break. Uh, first of all, when you said that the principal had hairy arms, the way that you explained that, I wasn't sure if the principal was female or male. So... I thought it might be like Fran Ginelli. I was relieved to hear it was Frank Ginelli. And secondly, why did every school have like a Jerome who was clearly in elementary school but looked like they were between the ages of 15 and 30? Like for our school in elementary school, it was Avery Carter. He literally looked like he was like 25 years old, had like full like facial hair by the time he was in fifth or sixth grade. Yeah, Jerome was this big farm kid and he had a mustache as i recall in third grade full mustache and he was just this kind of uh you know big kid and he might have been dating the yard duty for all i knew i mean it was that's how old jerome was like i i don't even know but we we became friends in high school and he was the same size in high school that he was in like the third grade that was the thing he never got any bigger you know i was kind of banking on jerome making it to the nfl it, you know, but here he just kind of was, he was like 5'10", 220 in the third grade and in the and in the 11th grade, same thing. So that's kind of how it went. But I'm glad the uh, parent-teacher conferences went well. All right, coming up, I will give my picks and lock in the Pac-12 weekend. Leave it here. Well, I'm ready to lock in my Pac-12 picks officially. Uh, if you subscribe and read me at johnconzano.com, uh, I've been busy this week. I've been busy writing, having fun with that. I uh, I want to thank everybody who subscribes. If you don't already subscribe, go to johnconzano.com and get a free subscription or a paid subscription. Whatever works for you obviously works for me. I wrote today uh, about some of the memories that Rich Brooks and Mike Bellotti and Nick Aliotti and Rick Neuheisel all have about the Oregon-Washington rivalry. Uh, uh, earlier this week, uh, I posted uh, a piece on the future of the Pac-2 conference. If you missed it, Oregon State and Washington State appear to be set to play as a two. Now, it's not official. Something could change in the 11th hour, but I am being told by sources involved with the Oregon State and, and Washington State's plight uh, that uh, they are busy trying to construct a 2024 college football schedule. 12 games, what will they do, who will they play, will they play a home-and-home, home? will they have a scheduling partnership with the Mountain West Conference. Uh, you know, it's, And a lot of this is tied to the transfer portal. I mean, it makes sense. Common sense is it will tell you that it's tied to the transfer portal and therefore, uh, you know, we should have all been tuned into that. Like, you know, it's important that the athletes know where they're going to play in 2024. So it makes sense to me that Oregon State and Washington State would want to have that answer well in front of the Monday that the 30-day window, the transfer portal window opens. It opens on Monday, December 4th. It's the Monday after the Pac-12 championship game. Pac-12 title game is on a Friday in Vegas, December 1st. On Monday, December 4th, the portal opens, and Washington Washington State want to have had some time to tell their athletes, hey, here's what we're doing, and here's why it's great for you, and here's why you shouldn't transfer. Because ideally, from a strategy standpoint, they'd like to retain Players. They'd like Aiden Childs at Oregon State to be back at quarterback. They'd like, uh, you know, all the offensive linemen and defensive linemen at Washington State to 
to stay at Washington State and, and avoid a mass exodus in the transfer portal. And the only way to do that is to be able to sell those athletes on a plan. And that plan's got to include playing some high-profile games that will get them in front of TV audiences. It's got to be. It's got to include, uh, you know, strong NIL presence. It's got to include playing some semblance of a air quotes here conference schedule that goes beyond them playing each other. And it's why I think they will include the Mountain West Conference in some form or fashion in this. Now, the Mountain West Conference athletic directors, I'm told, are meeting next week in Las Vegas. I should have some news on that front, uh, of course, in the uh, in the coming days. All right, my, let's get to my picks. Uh, you know, I'm locked in. I haven't wavered much this week, just on one or two games. <laughs> but, uh, you know, for those tracking me, I am 44-5 and five straight up in picking winners, 90%. So I've done well there, can hold my head high. This season against the spread, I'm only 21-19. and 19. That's 53%. I've lost two games by a half point. I don't like that. So I'm looking for a little karma this week. I want to have a good week uh, as it pertains to the spread. So I'm going to start with tonight's game, 7 o'clock on ESPN. Coach Prime not happy about playing a night game. It'll be an 8 o'clock kickoff in Boulder on ESPN. He's uh, saying he's glad he's leaving this conference. Um, you know, he's always recruiting, but I also think he's a little bit naive to think that Colorado's not going to be playing in some late windows in the Big 12. That's why the Big 12 coveted some of the Pac-12 schools. Uh, it's Stanford at Colorado. Stanford's been terrible in their last 18 conference games, 1-17 in the last 18. That's awful. They've been bad in the red zone on offense this season, dead last in the Pac-12 in touchdowns, only scored nine touchdowns this season. But they're first in field goals with 11. And that jumped out at me when I looked at the stat sheet. And it jumped out at me because Colorado's defense is 11th in the conference in points per game allowed and last in yards per game allowed. Stanford's not going to win this game, I don't think. But I think they can hang around a little bit in this game. And the spread is 11.5. And, and I think some of those field goal opportunities will turn into touchdowns for the Cardinal. And it's why I think Stanford can get to about 28 points in this game. And I think Colorado will beat them. I have it 34-28, but not cover. Keep an eye on that. Second game, Saturday, tomorrow morning, 12 p.m. Saturday, Pac-12 Network. Cal at Utah. Is Cam Rising playing or not? This is a story in a, a tentacle of this game that hasn't been talked about enough. Utah coach Kyle Whittingham, who I have deep respect for, he's a good coach, says he knows who's starting at quarterback, but he's not going to share with the rest of us. Here's his quote. He told reporters this week, quote, if somebody can give me one reason why it would help us win more, then I'll tell you everything. But I can't think of one thing, end quote. Now, I'm not so much worried about this game, coach, but the overall narrative of the Cam Rising injury. Kyle Whittingham, Cam Rising, both often in the offseason, at media day to my face, talked about the ACL injury, talked about him potentially being back for game one. We now find out that he not only tore his ACL in the Rose Bowl, but he suffered an injury to his meniscus. He suffered an injury to his MCL, his medial collateral ligament. He suffered an injury to his medial patellofemoral ligament. You know, I had to look that up. Uh, basically, he had a total knee reconstruction. And Utah kept the extent of his injuries a secret. It's caused some confusion, and I think it's been unfair to Cam Rising, too, because I think a lot of people are looking at him going, why isn't he back? Why isn't he already back? Well, I would need to know more. I'd need to have another conversation with Cam Rising to, to know, did he, was he complicit in that? Did he not want that out there? Or was that 
the doing of the Utah coaching staff. And if it was Utah, I think it's unfair to Rising. And if it was Rising being on board with it, I'm mostly okay with it. Uh, and, and that's where I stand on it. But it, the narrative of the injury, I think, has just clouded this entire season for Utah. I think it's been unfair to the players on the field, been unfair to Rising. It's been, you know, I, I won't bellyache about media not knowing who's going to start the game because, you know, who cares? But uh, I just think it's clouded the whole season. That said, Utah's playing at Rice-Eccles Stadium against Cal. They're going to win this game. They are very good at home. They've won 17 straight. I think they'll make they'll make it 18, and I think they'll cover the 13.5-point spread. Utah's going to win that game. Oregon's at Washington. I'm on record. I have not wavered on this game. 12.30 tomorrow on ABC. Game day coverage in the morning on ESPN, then the ABC kickoff. Been a lot of sandbagging and, and uh, mental warfare going on in the Washington front this week. But this game comes down to Michael Penix Jr. and his receivers against Oregon's defense. I think Bo Nix will score fine in this game. I think Oregon can get into the mid to high 30s against Washington's defense. And I don't think Washington's going to do better than about 31 or 34 points. I think Oregon wins it. Washington's favored by three. So, therefore, I think Oregon covers. And they win the game outright on the road. Arizona at Washington State, 4 o'clock Saturday, Pac-12 Network. Cougars didn't look good last week. But they were playing UCLA, really, really, really good defense. I think they'll bounce back. They'll get a home win against Arizona. And Arizona's thing this year has been that they they are, they are leading the conference in respectable outcomes. That's what I keep saying. They lost by one score to Washington. They lost by in overtime to USC. They're improved on defense. I think they can keep this game closer than expected. So I like Arizona in the 8.5 points. But I think Washington State's going to win the game and get back on track. USC's at Notre Dame, 4.30 tomorrow, NBC and Peacock. I want to pick against USC, but I just can't in this game. Trojans' defense has been bad. We've all seen it. They gave up 41 and 41 in the last two games and 28 before that to Arizona State. I think USC's going to lose some games this season, but this is not the game. Notre Dame's not built to get this done. So I don't think the Irish will be able to score with Caleb Williams. I think USC will survive. I have it very close, but Notre Dame's a two-and-a-half-point favorite. I think USC wins narrowly, 31-30. Like, this one could have overtime written all over it. Uh, remember I said that. UCLA at Oregon State, 5 o'clock Saturday on Fox. Bruins have been great in the last two games on defense. But Reister Stadium's a factor. And, you know, I asked Jonathan Smith this week, you know, about his superstitions, and he talked about the cup of coffee. He drinks two cups of co- coffee on the morning of the game day, and then he has another cup right before he arrives at the stadium, and that's superstition. But I think the big superstition that he has at Research Stadium is that it's Research Stadium. They've been great there. They're different there. Uh, they are a home favorite. I love home favorites in the Pac-12 mostly. I think it's uh, Oregon State covering the three-and-a-half-point spread. And beating UCLA at home, I have it 27-23. I don't want to forget Portland State, though. They're playing at Northern Arizona tomorrow, 1 o'clock. ESPN Plus, if you want to check it out. Pivotal game for Boost Barnum's team. Vikings have home games against Idaho State and Eastern Washington the next two weeks after this. If they can get this road victory at Northern Arizona, it gives them an opportunity for huge momentum. Northern Arizona is a two-and-a-half-point favorite, by the way. Looked it up. And they're having a weird season. They beat two ranked teams. They beat Montana. They beat Weber State. 
They lost by one point to Sacramento State. That looks scary to me. But then they also got thumped by Utah Tech, who's won and only has one win this season. They got beat 50-36 to in Week 3 by a lower division team. It's a weird team. It's a weird season. Portland State's coming off a bye. Northern Arizona's played seven straight weeks. I'm going to go with the rested team, even though they're on the road. I'll take the Vikings, 31, Northern Arizona, 27. All right, I want everybody to have a great weekend. Make sure you are subscribed and reading me at johnconzano.com. I'll have full coverage of Oregon State's game against UCLA, full coverage of the Ducks-Huskies debacle in, in Seattle. We'll be all over that. Grab a podcast to the show wherever you get a podcast. And remember, the bald-faced truth is not here for a long time, just a good time. Have a great weekend, everybody.